This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Silicon Values, The Future of Free Speech Under Surveillance Capitalism by Jillian C. York. What is the impact of surveillance capitalism on our right to free speech? The internet once promised to be a place of extraordinary freedom beyond the control of money or politics. But today, corporations and platforms exercise control over our ability to access information and share knowledge to a greater extent than any state From the online calls to arms in the thick of the Arab Spring to the contemporary front line of misinformation, Jillian C. York charts the war over our digital rights. She examines how big corporations have become unaccountable censors and the devastating impact this has had on those who have been censored. Silicon Values, The Future of Free Speech Under Surveillance Capitalism by Jillian C. York, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today's U.S. empire is often informal, mostly disavowed, and it's hard to precisely identify within the geographically complex webs of power and wealth that shape today's capitalist world system. To clarify today's geopolitics, then, we must look to history. And today, there is perhaps no episode of American imperial history less understood or even remembered at all than U.S. colonial rule in the Philippines, which formally began with the 1898 treaty ending the Spanish-American War and lasted until July 4, 1946. This history not only illuminates U.S. expansion abroad in the way that formal colonialism laid the groundwork for the neocolonial world order, it also exposes the way that immigration politics at the time, and anti-Filipino nativist politics in particular, made class and race domestically here inside the United States. Filipinos entered the U.S. in large numbers as colonial subjects during an era of exuberant white racism when Asians were otherwise tightly restricted or excluded from entry. First, Filipinos came to Hawaii's booming sugar plantations and then moved on to the West Coast's agricultural fields and Alaska's canned salmon industry. Filipinos faced brutal conditions on Hawaiian plantations, and militantly organized along Japanese workers. They then did the same with Mexican laborers along the West Coast. Filipinos organized politically, too, to fight a powerful nativist movement that wanted them excluded and removed from the country. My guest today is Rick Baldoz, the author of The Third Asiatic Invasion, Empire and Migration in Filipino America, 1898 to 1946. Before we get started, unless this is the first Dig episode you have ever listened to, you probably know that this is a listener-supported podcast. And the place where listeners like you support us is at this website, patreon.com slash the dig. Some of you cannot afford to contribute. Some of you maybe could sort of afford to, but are on limited funds and paying for a otherwise free show would not be the wisest financial decision. That is totally fine, of course. And that is why we have always made every episode available to everyone for free 
with no paywall. But that only works because those of you who can afford to contribute do so at patreon.com slash the dig. Our model is essentially that those of you who can afford to contribute unpaywall permanently the entire show for everyone else. And so if you have not contributed yet and you can afford to contribute, please take a quick moment now and make a monthly contribution. We also have left-wing books to send, tote bags, mugs, anyhow, that is patreon.com slash the dig. Okay, here is Rick Baldoz, a professor of sociology at Oberlin College and the author of The Third Asiatic Invasion, Empire and Migration in Filipino America, 1898 to 1946. He is working on a new book about U.S. immigration policy and the exercise of imperial sovereignty from the 1960s to the present. Rick Baldoz, welcome to The Dig. It's a pleasure to be here. You write about your book that a, quote, central argument is that the incorporation of Filipinos into American society played an important role in shaping the politics of citizenship and race during an important period in U.S. history. Let's start out with a big picture overview. What does U.S. colonialism in the Philippines and then the unusual place of Filipino migrants in the U.S. reveal about how American politics, race, capitalism and empire were made during the first half of the 20th century. Right. I mean, it reveals something, you know, important about a kind of new phase in sort of U.S. expansionism, right, sort of moving from beyond the kind of domestic expansion, westward expansion experiment of the kind of mid and late 19th century to overseas expansion. And in some ways, you know, the the U.S. overseas experiment um, was a sort of ad hoc endeavor, the sort of Spanish-American war certainly was a war of choice. And I think that the U.S. sort of U.S. policymakers were really focused on the kind of Caribbean part of that question, the Spanish empire, right? And clearly had plans to annex the Puerto Rico and, and Cuba, but they got something else in the deal, right? The Philippines and Guam and set about, you know, developing a set of policies to try to address how and under what conditions the Philippines and the people who lived in the Philippines uh, would be integrated into uh, the U.S. empire. And that created a lot of challenges for U.S. policymakers. A lot of the, the challenges sort of revolved around issues of race, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, in a few minutes. But ultimately, the status of the Philippines and of Filipinos was something that kind of unfolded over time. Right, It took about five or 10 years for some clarity to um, appear about what exactly it meant to annex the Philippines uh, and the people who lived there and what sort of status did they have uh, within the larger U.S. kind of imperial orbit. I don't know that there's something so awful that the U.S. has done of the magnitude of the colonization of the Philippines that so few Americans know about. I mean, I have no clue, but I bet if I was walking down the street that maybe fewer than 5% of the people that I would ask would know that the U.S. ruled the Philippines for decades. How did this important piece of American imperial history vanish down the memory hole the way that it did? It's a great question, because I think even to call the U.S. an empire for some people seems sort of unsettling, like in what sense is the U.S. an empire? And I think 
it's a sort of question that I've grappled with for a long time, how to make sense of the sort of invisibility of the Philippines and the larger U.S. imperial kind of experiment in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I think, you know, one area where we sometimes are able to make a connection is when, and I've done this many times giving talks over the years about the book, is, you know, why are there so many Filipino nurses in the U.S.? <laughs> because of U.S. empire, right? Because one of the kind of early uh, sort of pieces of colonial programming in the Philippines was sort of developing a sort of public health infrastructure in the Philippines, as long as well as developing a kind of uh, military infrastructure. Uh, and part of that uh, public health program was to train to train uh, Filipinos to sort of you know develop a infrastructure, including a nursing infrastructure, to sort of care for uh, the local population. This training was carried out by American nurses. Right, the training was done via American textbooks, and over time. Right, all the sort of licensing kind of procedures uh, in the Philippines sort of public health system were based on the U.S. model. So jump forward, you know, a few decades, 1950s and 1960s, when there's a nursing shortage in the U.S., we see the sort of large scale kind of uh, sort of movement of uh, Filipino nurses, right, who are taught in English, using American textbooks, and are sort of ready to hit the ground running when they arrive in the U.S. to sort of fill this important labor shortage in the sort of 50s, 60s, and 70s. So, yeah, it's a big question. You know, why do so people, few people know about the Philippines? I mean, for sure, there, there's some awareness of things like the sort of World War II era and sort of Battle of Bataan. Uh, but generally speaking, it sort of remains somewhat hidden. And I think that's partly because of a certain level of kind of maybe shame about the kind of violence of U.S. colonialism and the treatment of Filipinos both in the Philippines and in the U.S. So I think it's one of those sort of cases of trying to sort of sweep something under the rug. It's not to say that, you know, the Philippines wasn't really important, right? If we look at sort of contemporaneous newspapers during the early 20th century up through the World War II era, the Philippines is a kind of big news item all the time for a variety of reasons. So it wasn't like people weren't aware of it, but I think over time, there's been this sort of instinct to kind of, again, sweep this sort of ignominious uh, history of U.S. sort of colonial rule in the Philippines under the rug. It seems like the U.S. colonization of the Philippines is just sort of inconsistent with the story that Americans tell about themselves at least after World War II. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So the sort of idea of sort of benevolent assimilation that the U.S. Uh, went to the Philippines to help um, the sort of desperate population who needed uh, colonial tutelage and sort of stewardship um, is sort of belied by the fact that the Filipinos said, we don't want you here, <laughs> right? They were fighting a war of independence against um, their Spanish colonizers when uh, the Spanish-American War uh, broke out. Filipinos fought a protracted war against sort of the imposition of U.S. rule from sort of 1899 to 1903. So it's sort of, you know, the story of the initial occupation of the Philippines is sort of at odds with the story we tell ourselves about the sort of why the U.S. was there in the first place and the degree to which, you know, the U.S. was welcomed with open arms. Um, not the case, right? <laughs> it's a very powerful imperial country imposing its sovereignty uh, over underdeveloped country that had been under Spanish rule for four centuries. Part of the story, you know, in terms of Americans' ambivalence, at least during the early part of the 20th century, explains the sort of project of the kind of early World's Fairs in the sort of 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, and then the sort of 
uh, international expositions in places like Seattle and Portland and San Francisco not long after, right? It was really a project to kind of uh, persuade or convince kind of ordinary Americans that these people needed us, right? That these people were so backwards and uncivilized uh, that they needed some prolonged period of colonial supervision, right? And you could sort of see it with your own eyes. Look at these natives in their quote-unquote native habitats at these kind of uh, international expositions, and you could sort of watch them. And uh, over time, right, the Filipino the sort of exhibits became the most popular feature at these fairs. Everyone wanted to sort of see the civilizing mission <laughs> in front of their own eyes. And I think that did a, a sort of effective job at sort of selling uh, to the American public the kind of value and sort of virtue of sort of white man's burden and the civilizing mission, right? Sort of convince people, forget all you might hear in the sort of newspapers about Filipino rebels resisting American rule, look at them. They need us, right? These people are incapable of self-determination, incapable of self-government. And also send another message, which is the idea that these people might be good material for U.S. citizenship can be ruled out. Because again, look at them, right? These are people that clearly do not have the makeup, the sort of racial makeup to become members uh, of the U.S. polity. Let's turn to some historical specifics. The U.S. seized the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Guam, and Cuba in 1898 from Spain as part of the treaty that ended the Spanish-American War. What what was the Spanish-American War, both in its legitimating rationale and in reality? I think, you know, there was this sort of increasing kind of pressure for the U.S. to kind of be more aggressive uh, in the Caribbean, sort of to kind of rid the region of, you know, sort of Spanish influence. The U.S. appeared to be looking for a reason to kind of start something. The infamous sort of sinking of the naval ship in the Caribbean that was attributed to Spain and sort of later sort of some contrary data that it might have <laughs> sunk of its own, you know, kind of some explosion on board uh, the ship. So the U.S., you know, was looking for a reason to kind of try to push back against Spanish influence kind of on the outer rim of the United States and found a convenient way to do that by sort of confronting uh, sort of Spanish empire. And one of the, the kind of rationales, of course, was that we're trying to help the Puerto Ricans and Cubans sort of free themselves or liberate themselves from Spanish tyranny. And they need us uh, to, do, to do that. Right now, obviously, conveniently helps the U.S. as well, the U.S. interests in the region as they <laughs> sort of replace uh, Spain as the kind of new uh, colonial overseer. But yeah, the rationales were sort of self-serving, right? We were trying to support Puerto Rican and Cuban sort of rebels against sort of Spanish tyranny and also kind of increase the influence to sort of U.S., both kind of political and commercial interests uh, in the Caribbean. Well, that sure sounds familiar from recent decades. <laughs> Absolutely. How did the U.S. attempt to reconcile what seems like contradictory positions on, on this point? On the one hand, portraying itself as carrying on Europe's white man's burden legacy of colonialism, but then on the other hand, positively contrasting this benevolent U.S. empire against European and particularly Spanish colonizers who were framed as backward and barbaric. Right. Yeah. And again, we're talking about a very sort of self-serving narrative here, right? So the U.S. sort of frequently said, listen, European-style colonialism is all about kind of economic extraction. It's about sort of commercial interest. Our version of kind of empire building is about sort of a civilizing mission, right? We're trying to export Republican institutions. We're trying to export kind of capitalist prosperity to uh, the world. So our version of empire is a sort of more benevolent, a more kind of 
kind and gentle style of imperialism that's sort of more cultural than sort of about economic exploitation. So the U.S. sort of frames it that way, but clearly um, there's commercial objectives underlying all of these uh, initiatives. Uh, in the case of uh, Puerto Rico and Cuba, clearly sugar looms very large and to you know extent uh, tobacco. In the case of the Philippines, right, the, the U.S. doesn't really know what it has there, right? So they spent a lot of time sending over these sort of, you know, census kind of survey uh, teams to do a kind of inventory of things like, you know, minerals, resources to figure out what does the U.S. have here? You know, one uh, aim for sure is to kind of see if they can, you know, develop a kind of sugar plantocracy perhaps in the Philippines, right? Sort of climate speaking, it makes sense, but the the Philippine sugar industry is relatively undeveloped compared to uh, the Caribbean industry. Another big part of it, of course, is the U.S. sort of whatever ambivalence they have about sort of holding on to the Philippines after the Spanish-American War is sort of undercut by the kind of these powerful business interests in the U.S. who say, you know, for sure there's resources to extract from the Philippines, but the bigger prize is, you know, kind of East Asian markets, in particular China. So uh, holding on to the Philippines will give us a sort of uh, way station and kind of military base uh, in Southeast Asia to kind of advanced sort of U.S. geopolitical as well as commercial interests in the region, again, with this this sort of animating idea of the time that, you know, there's 800 million people in China ready to buy uh, U.S. surplus products, right? So having this kind of way station in the Pacific uh, is very appealing to a key sector of the sort of U.S. business. One U.S. senator at the time triumphantly declared that the Pacific Ocean had become, quote, an American lake. Absolutely, Yes. And sort of, again, advances sort of, you know, U.S. goals um, are sort of twofold, right? Again, for sure, China looms large, but also Japan, the Philippines is a potential market for U.S. products. And then, you know, the sort of unknown is what value, what sort of resources are in the Philippines itself that we might be able to extract. Uh, There's a lot of time spent looking into potential sort of mining resources, Again, the sugar industry, coffee, tobacco are all sort of potential areas of sort of U.S. investment uh, or expropriation. Um, so lots to kind of, you know, be interested in. Ultimately, as a sort of commercial, valuable piece of property, the Philippines doesn't really pay off as people thought it might in the beginning. It just doesn't have enough of the resources to make it, you know, a, a kind of a permanent uh, colony of the U.S. For sure, there are resources of value, uh, but this idea that they might hold on to the the Philippines permanently is sort of quickly sort of taken off the table. So then the question becomes, how long do we hold on to them? Right? And there's an argument, oh, maybe it's going to be 40 or 50 years um, minimum. And other senators and congressmen are arguing, well, it might be two or 300 years. We don't know. Right? So the idea is, you know, we got to see what we have there first. For sure, we have this kind of way station, this sort of, you know, sort of potential geopolitical uh, node. Uh, and then maybe we also can sort of extract some valuable resources from the islands as well. How did the prior U.S. history of colonization of indigenous people and of Mexicans, how did that shape the ideology and practices that guided this paternalistic progressive era U.S. empire in the Philippines? Well, it looms very large in the debates about annexation, which was not a foregone conclusion, right? I think people tend to think, well, because, you know, we signed the Treaty of Paris and the U.S. ultimately annexed the Philippines, it was actually a very contentious debate, right? So, you know, there was the imperialist faction and the anti-imperialist faction. Uh, and I think a lot of us tend to 
probably want to embrace the anti-imperialist in these sorts of matters. Uh, but in the case of the anti-imperialist, a big faction of that group actually opposed annexation on racial grounds, arguing that right there's eight to 10 million people living in the Philippines. If we follow previous sort of precedent of expansion, thinking here of like the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, that means the constitution follows the flag and that potentially all eight to 10 million you know, residents of the Philippines will be collectively naturalized as U.S. citizens, right? So they sort of argue against annexing the Philippines formally on sort of racial grounds. So if we do that, you're going to have eight to 10 million sort of non-white sort of savages uh, with the kind of fully vested rights of citizenship. And that is something to be alarmed about. Um, we also have a, a block of the anti-imperialists from kind of Western states who invoke the kind of specter of Chinese immigration. We will be overrun or flooded by Filipino immigrants if we formally annex them. You know, there was a small group of sort of Northeastern anti-imperialists who had a more kind of conventional uh, argument about this violates government of by uh, government by consent. But the more vocal faction was these sort of racially kind of alarmist activist. On the imperialist side, um, they tended to kind of focus on the kind of civilizing mission, kind of white man's burden kind of argument, which, you know, obviously is a kind of expedient argument that this is about sort of moral uplift and not about sort of commercial imperatives. But yes, the kind of paternalistic racism sort of ultimately ruled the day where the imperialists won and said, yeah, it's not just about kind of economic exploitation or commercial uh, sort of access to sort of East Asian markets. It's fundamentally about sort of uplifting and Christianizing the Filipinos and sort of sh bringing the light of civilization to these sort of backwards people in the sort of dark corners of the globe. What does it reveal that U.S. political cu culture nurtured these two different forms of racism that came into conflict over empire in the Philippines? Because it's a contradiction in American racism, I think, that we still see today in various forms, this kind of dynamic contradiction between nationalist and imperialist forms of racism that are both in conflict, but still kind of fundamentally dependent upon each other in some way. Yeah. And I think, you know, they, they for sure intersect, right? The kind of paternalistic and I guess aversive racism. I mean, ultimately where they kind of conjoin in, in the case of the, the Philippines is that both sides agree that whatever happens, whether the U.S. formally annexes the Philippines or whether it sort of grants them their independence, is that in no way um, are they fit to be U.S. citizens. They both agree on that, right? That sort of they're racially disqualified uh, by virtue of their kind of racial inferiority. So they sort of find a common ground there. Uh, so then the question becomes, you know, how do you make that happen, right? There's this kind of precedent of collectively naturalizing the inhabitants of territories like the sort of the, what's now the American Southwest, the, the Louisiana Territory. And ultimately, that question is sort of settled uh, by the federal courts, in particular the Supreme Court, in a series of cases known as the Insular Cases. Right. So Congress asserts, listen, they're not going to be collectively naturalized unless we stipulate that. But that's a claim, right? It's not sort of necessarily going to be affirmed by the, by the federal courts. And the Supreme Court takes up this issue and sort of acknowledges there is something special about the residents of you know, Puerto Rico, uh, Guam, uh, and the Philippines, uh, but that they had not been collectively naturalized. Right? So they agree that Congress did have the power uh, to determine whether they would be collectively naturalized as U.S. citizens or not. Uh, but then, you know, that begged the question, well, what are they? If they're not citizens, how do we kind of, you know, characterize their kind of socio-legal status? And the courts sort of invent a new category called the U.S. national, 
which is a kind of intermediary category between sort of alien and citizen. Right, so they owe allegiance to the U.S. But you call it a political twilight zone between citizenship and alienage. That's right. Yeah, the sort of middle ground imperial center right to the metropole. That's one of the rights that uh, U.S. nationals have. A sort of question that remains unanswered by the insular cases is if Filipinos migrate to the U.S., are they eligible to be naturalized citizens, right? And that's a, an issue that I take up uh, in the book as well, um, right? They hadn't been collectively naturalized, meaning they all 10 million Filipinos hadn't automatically become U.S. citizens by virtue of annexation. Whether they were eligible to become U.S. citizens if they migrated to the U.S. remains an open question. Yeah. Why was that? And who at the time was eligible for naturalization by law? Because And here we should distinguish for listeners who aren't familiar with all of the minutiae of immigration history, that we should distinguish immigration law from naturalization law, because the two are the two are different here. Yeah. So sort of 1870s sort of U.S. sort of updates its sort of naturalization uh, law, right, post-Civil War and sort of which before the Civil War obviously had been limited to kind of free white persons. Uh, after 1870, they sort of add uh, persons of African descent to that uh, sort of eligibility classification. Asians, right, by the late 19th century, sort of the courts determined that they are remain racially disqualified uh, from U.S. citizenship or from U.S. naturalization. And it's basically the same U.S. naturalization law from what, when was it, 1790 that initially said? Yeah, with a very modest update post-Civil War, yes. Yeah, white people and then black people, people of African descent were added after the Civil War. Correct. And, you know, so... It might seem clear cut. Well, that doesn't include Filipinos because they're neither white nor black by, by most definitions. But, you know, Filipino um, sort of immigrants, the sort of first wave that comes to the sort of Hawaii and the U.S. mainland uh, sort of challenge that, suggesting that perhaps uh, there's an exception for them because of their unique political status. Right. One of the things that is affirmed by um, sort of this classification as U.S. nationals is that they owe permanent allegiance to the U.S., Right, that they live under U.S. sovereignty and owe allegiance to the U.S. Um, so uh, a number of you know Filipino early Filipino migrants say, well, that means that we have a special status vis-a-vis uh, U.S. naturalization law, and that the racial disqualification doesn't apply to us. And one of the things we learn from this sort of early because naturalization law applies to aliens, and they're not aliens. Correct. That's another big part of it, right? So there's a number of challenges, right? Are they eligible to apply, uh, become naturalized citizens? And in the sort of first cases, one of the big challenges is that there's no way for them to even apply, right? The U.S. naturalization um, application is for aliens, right? And they're not aliens, they're nationals. And another part of the application form during this era was that um, you had to renounce allegiance to your former sovereign, right? As And sort of pledge allegiance to your new sovereign, the United States. In the case of Filipinos, uh, that would have meant that they would have renounced allegiance to the United States, who was their sovereign, to become citizens of the United States, right? So um, it was a sort of strange case where they weren't even um, able to submit an application because there was no box for them to check in terms of their uh, unique socio-legal status. Because they were nationals, which was essentially a euphemism for colonial subject. Correct. And U.S. naturalization law is about naturalizing or granting citizenship to aliens. And again, you invent a new category, that category comes into conflict with established law and precedent, then you have to figure out, you know, what is, you know, what does this new category mean? Um, are Filipinos eligible or not? Or are there U.S. nationals? 
And there's no kind of clear answer, right? The, the courts offer all kinds of contradictory answers, right? There's dozens of cases in the kind of from roughly kind of the 19-teens to the 1920s where Filipinos apply for uh, naturalization. Uh, some courts say, yes, they're eligible because of their, their unique status as U.S. nationals. Other courts say, no, they're racially disqualified. doesn't matter <laughs> that they owe allegiance to the U.S. And a number of those cases actually involved uh, Filipinos who'd served in the U.S. military. So they have an added sort of piece of uh, or cr criteria that not only are they sort of U.S. nationals and no allegiance to the U.S., but they served in the U.S. military during a time of war, right? So there was a number of sort of pieces of legislation during both World War One and World War Two that offered expedited citizenship um, to aliens who served uh, in the U.S. military. In the case of Filipinos, I think around 25,000 Filipinos served in the U.S. military during World War One. So a number of them who were living in the U.S., right, working or sort of enlisted in the military, living in the U.S. at a you know military base or naval, in this case, mostly naval bases, and then applied for U.S. citizenship and found that sort of, you know, a very sort of mixed results. <laughs> Some were said yes, and others, uh, judges said no, right? They're, they're disqualified on racial grounds. Before we get into some of the specific history of Filipino migration and anti-Filipino nativism and Filipino labor organizing, I want to talk a little bit more about U.S. colonialism in, in the Philippines. First, to what extent was this moment merely a continuation of the American settler colonial project of westward continental expansion? And to what extent did Pacific Empire mark something new, a, a distinct break with what had come before? Um, I sort of lean towards this an extension, meaning that sort of, you know, westward expansion um, sort of reaches a kind of territorial limit <laughs> at the West Coast. And then the question becomes, you know, how does the U.S. sort of enlarge its um, sphere of influence, both kind of politically, socially and culturally? And the Spanish-American War is sort of the, the kind of pivot point here, right, where the sort of U.S. finally can sort of join the sort of club of kind of world empires and claim a kind of overseas uh, sort of set of uh, sort of collection of, of colonies. In the annexation debate, one of the arguments put forward by the kind of pro-imperialist uh, faction was that, listen, this idea that the Constitution follows the flag and that we don't have to worry about sort of collectively naturalizing the residents of the Philippines was look at our treatment of Native Americans sort of on the kind of domestic front, right? That we took their land. They're not U.S. citizens. They're ineligible for citizenship. So that was sort of one model, right? It's the kind of domestic dependent nations model that we can annex territory without granting kind of political rights uh, or naturalizing the residents of territory taken uh, during westward expansion. So that's one important connection, right? This sort of this sort of differential treatment of subject populations. So I tend to think of it as a sort of an extension. It's more of the kind of the worldwide version versus the kind of uh, domestic continental version. Uh, but more or less, I mean, I think follows the same pattern, expropriating land and resources, subjecting the local population to sort of U.S. rule and sovereignty, sort of locating the sort of subject populations in a kind of disadvantaged stance within the larger polity. But in American political culture, it was seen as as somewhat of a break amongst people participating in the debate. Yeah, and this I mean I think the the Philippines is the most notable case here in so far as it was you know many thousands of miles away from the US so you know there was a lot of concern about the distance obviously the kind of both geographic but also cultural distance right there was a kind of faction of the kind of uh, imperialist who's like well you know Puerto Rico is really close geographically to the US 
they're sort of legible to us, right? They're sort of population, they're likely, you know, might be suitable for sort of incorporation in sort of the U.S. polity. In the case of the Philippines, right, sort of Southeast Asia, another kind of thread in this debate was, you know, can we defend them, right? If we're going to take them as a colony, that means we have to sort of defend them militarily from other kind of rival uh, imperial powers that might be a drag us into the quicksand of a war with whoever, Japan or another European colonial power. So there is anxiety about the Philippines, right, that it sort of represents a new sort of phase, both sort of, you know, in terms of distance, in terms of the population, the vulnerability of the U.S. sort of militarily to defend a territory like this. And, you know, it's sort of one of the, the kind of recurring themes that becomes really notable in World War II is one of the arguments that's sort of frequently made by the imperialists is we can't give the Philippines its independence because there's some scheming imperial powers that's looking to kind of <laughs> take them over, or they need us to protect them, which sort of looms very large during World War II, where when an actual foreign power does seek to occupy the Philippines, the U.S. is quick to <laughs> hightail it out of the, out of the archipelago. And then lastly, on this point, what was the scope of Filipino resistance? You touched on this briefly earlier, earlier, both civil and military to, yeah. to U.S. empire. And then how did that resistance shape the debate in the U.S.? Yeah, well, it was it was quite significant, you know, protracted kind of war of kind of independence against sort of the American occupation lasted, you know, again, roughly four or five years of kind of really serious kind of insurgency. The U.S., you know, the, the kind of death toll is sort of contested, but, you know, anywhere from three or 400,000 Filipinos were killed to up to perhaps a million. So it was quite a, a bloody conflict in a number of sort of war habits that we would see later, things like the kind of famous, infamous, you know, water torture were developed during this time to kind of uh, punish uh, insurgents, early experiments with kind of concentration camps against sort of perceived insurgents in the Philippines seeking to separate rebels from local populations. So it becomes a, a kind of early testing ground and laboratory for sort of U.S. sort of militarism uh, on a global scale. And this is where one of the places where Teddy Roosevelt was out testing and developing American manhood. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So that's a kind of another thread in this conversation, right, is a kind of this perceived crisis in sort of American society, including kind of crisis of, of masculinity, perception that, you know, we'd sort of closed the frontier uh, and the U.S. needed a new outlet for its sort of energies and its sort of will to power. Uh, and the Philippines offered one potential sort of outlet or venue for the U.S. to kind of project its power abroad and to kind of really arrive on the global scene as a, a sort of true imperial power, not just a sort of domestic uh, power, but a sort of international or global power. Let's turn to migration. You write, quote, empire and migration go together. And such migration takes place in different ways in both directions, to and from the metropole, which is an important point you make. How generally speaking do empire and migration relate to one another? And then more specifically, how and why did migration play out the way that it did with U.S. colonialism in the Philippines? Yeah, well, sort of the, the argument here is that the act of colonization itself entails kind of border crossing of the kind of immigration variety, right? And I think we often think of immigration only coming to the metropole, but any act of sort of colonization involves sending thousands, tens of thousands of people, whether it's military personnel, whether it's colonial officials, 
in the case of Philippines, you know, teachers, medical professionals to settle in the colony to, you know, set up shop. I mean, just you know, tens of thousands of U.S. troops in the Philippines itself, we could argue, or I would argue, is itself a form of migration. Border crossing involving uh, humans sort of, you know, settling for protracted periods of time in the new territory. So that's the first part, right, that we should think of empire itself as a form of, of migration because it involves cross-border movement of people who settle or stay in a territory for a prolonged period of time. But of course, it also spurs a kind of return migration, right? There's a recoil effect, uh, where we see these sort of American institutions um, slowly take root in the Philippines. Um, we see things like intermarriage, right? uh, colonial officials uh, bringing a Filipino servant back with them, soldiers intermarrying with the local population and bringing a wife back, right? So for sure, there's kind of that part of the story, right? The kind of migration of the colonial personnel uh, and the people that they bring back with them. And then, of course, there's also just colonial officials who, who play an important role in sort of recruiting Filipinos to come to the U.S., right? And the U.S. colonial officials play a, a really central role in the recruitment of Filipinos to work on Hawaiian sugar plantations, right? Hawaiian sugar planters actually reach out to U.S. colonial officials and say, can you supply us with labor? And they do so, right? Initially, it's a small number, but as the kind of political situation in Hawaii became more fraught with the kind of uh, sort of militancy of Japanese plantation workers, the sugar planters and the U.S. colonial officials worked close together to kind of drum up more uh, migration to Hawaii, which, you know, sort of sets the stage for the sort of later migration uh, to the West Coast, right? After Filipinos have sort of um, started to become familiar with sort of, you know, agribusiness, both in the Hawaii uh, and Alaska and the West Coast, the recruitment sort of efforts pick up. And there's this another small piece of the story, which is the kind of role of kind of international kind of shipping um, industry, right? So there's a kind of, by the early 20th century, there's a kind of global traffic and thing, you know, kind of steamships, you know, sending freight and mail overseas, including to Southeast Asia, but they're only making uh, money one way of that journey, right? <laughs> sending things to those places, right? So the shipping industry uh, decides that, you know, we need to make some money coming back. And one way we can do that is by sort of bringing Filipinos back over sort of in steerage, right, as sort of passengers, right? So there's a kind of vested interest of sort of commercial shipping industry and sort of facilitating, fostering kind of a kind of migration from Southeast Asia to the U.S. because they're making money off it. And in terms of your argument's general application that empire and migration go together, I think that holds true even in conditions where there is no explicit avowed empire like today. It's just true, I think, of a world system wherein political and economic power is exercised at a scale that's larger than the metropole's political community. You know, whether you call it formal empire or sort of militarism, that there's sort of long history of sort of, you know, disruption caused by U.S. interventions across the world. I mean, we see it in Central America, right, the kind of legacy of sort of U.S. military intervention in the 70s and 80s that produces this large migration sort of disruption in places like El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala, Dominican Republic, uh, for sure. Great case study of this, of course, is sort of Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. Right? So there's a kind of long history of uh, whether it's a formal empire, whether it's sort of geopolitical entanglements of those kind of interventions producing a kind of return migration of people who are sort of uprooted by the violence of uh, sort of empire and militarism or 
through kind of networks, right, where the sort of trans-Pacific networks between sort of U.S. military and business interests in these regions help to kind of facilitate uh, cross-border flows of migrants back and forth across the globe. And then it's also implicated relatedly in the sort of uneven patterns of development inherent to the global economy. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so the Philippines, you know, is one of the largest exporters of labor in the world. Uh, And the usual explanation, which I think is convincing, is that, you know, it's a very underdeveloped country. Economic opportunities are few and far between. And, you know, you establish a kind of pattern and an industry of sort of sending people abroad who then sort of send remittances back home. And this sort of takes on a life of its own, right, where these sort of migrants spend, you know, large chunks of their adult life, you know, working abroad, sending a remittance back home. Also, in some ways, not only does it sort of prop up the, the economies in their home country, but it also staves off political unrest, right, <laughs> by shipping a large chunk of your population abroad, right, that sort of potentially acts like a salve, right? Some of the political unrest that would probably happen if they weren't abroad uh, is muted by the fact that they're sort of working all over the globe. And in the case of Filipinos today, we are talking, for example, about domestic labor, nursing, and shipping. Absolutely, yes. So those are the big kind of industries. I mean, a a smaller one that's worth mentioning, too, is sort of uh, working in entertainment, working as sort of musicians and entertainers on cruise ships and hotel bars across the globe. But yeah, I mean, it's a really huge, it's the the biggest industry in the Philippines is sort of the, the labor export um, brokerage industry. And it's, you know, it's, you know, 30 or 40 years old. Um, and it sort of plays a, a sort of vital role, again, sort of providing uh, remittances that help keep the, you know, families afloat in the Philippines and shows no signs of abating anytime soon. So it means this legacy right now, more than a century later of sort of U.S. intervention remains sort of central to kind of Philippine life even today. Turning back a century to the early period in your book, let's provide some context for the immigration politics of that time. What political and legal reality did Filipino migrants enter when they arrived in the U.S.? There had been Chinese and Japanese immigrants being excluded and restricted, the rise of Jim Crow in the South after the defeat of Reconstruction, and by the early 1920s, the implementation of the National Origins Quotas Acts, which targeted Southern and Eastern Europeans, all amid the rise of eugenics and the second clan. What what sort of United States were Filipinos entering? Yeah, well, they, I mean, that sort of, you gave away the game there. <laughs> but they enter into a country that's sort of very, you know, kind of a height of sort of racial nationalism that plays out in these different ways, right? The kind of immigration exclusion, Chinese exclusion was sort of the, the first kind of, you know, targeted uh, sort of federal immigration restriction sort of evolves over time into a kind of generalized anti-Asian, right, the Asiatic Bard Zone of 1917, and then sort of perfected with the 1924 Immigration Act that essentially bars all immigration from Asia. So, right, just the animus that drove those policies, right, is extremely important. And it becomes a kind of, you know, it's the backdrop of Filipino enter into this sort of context, right, in the kind of mid to late 1920s. And it certainly sort of raises the hackles of the nativist lobby, right, who'd lobbied for decades, right, to bar Asians from entering the U.S. successfully in the end. And so they're not very happy to learn that Filipinos are uh, exempted from those prohibitions because of their unique status as U.S. nationals, right, as colonial subjects of the U.S. So they enter into 
hostile environment, right? The nativist, the center or the kind of epicenter of American nativism is on the West Coast in California in particular, where the sort of large numbers of Filipinos arrive in the late 1920s. Um, so they're entering into a kind of a climate or environment of hostility uh, in that sense. Uh, and then the kind of racial politics, as you allude to, right, the kind of second clan, the larger kind of post-reconstruction kind of retrenchment uh, in the United States. So uh, both the kind of racial and kind of nativist politics are really at a kind of pinnacle at this time. Filipinos, you know, have a, a sort of complicated sort of story here because even though they're exempted from the kind of exclusionary laws, they're not. no one's laying out the welcome mat. I mean, agribusiness is initially actually fairly happy about the arrival of Filipinos. Uh, I mean, looking back, it, it might seem strange, but there's a lot of ambivalence amongst agribusiness on the West Coast about the use of Mexican labor in, in agriculture, right? So by this time, right, Japanese and Chinese labor had, had dried up because of exclusion. So there's ambivalence about sort of Mexican labor, right? There's a sort of all this weird discourse like, well, we don't know that they're sort of willing to sort of uh, stay here long term. They're too close to Mexico. So maybe they'll leave once they've worked for a few weeks. So there's a lot of concern that they're not a sort of long term solution to the. And there's a nativist push at the time to extend the national absolutely. origins quotas to cover the Western Hemisphere, which was never covered with numerical quotas until until 1965. That's right. And sort of the 1924 Act, right, sort of establishes the Border Patrol and makes it harder to cross, right? Sort of the, the kind of financial kind of burdens of crossing become a little bit more uh, burdensome during this time. And the other big question or the big kind of issue for agribusiness is, yes, you know, we can probably work with Mexican labor, but we need a counterweight, right? We need another group to sort of engage in the kind of conventional divide and conquer tactics, right? So we need another group that we can sort of play against the Mexican uh, sort of laboring population. So enter the Filipino, right? That um, they're seen as a kind of, again, a counterweight to the potential solidarity of Mexican workers on the West Coast. Again, initially, um, agribusiness is is fairly kind of welcoming, right? They like the fact that Filipinos um, are going to be able to play them off against Mexicans. They also have a, a kind of stereotype that Asian laborers were more docile than Mexican uh, workers. So there's a kind of perception that that tradition can be kind of re-engaged. And then with the case of Filipinos, there's also a a kind of belief that after four centuries of, of colonialism, that Filipinos are more kind of tractable, right? That they're, they're used to sort of taking authority from their superiors and that they'll make good agricultural labor because of their kind of history of, of colonial subordination, right? That they don't fight back, that they're sort of naturally subordinate or sort of naturally deferential to authority figures, in particular white authority figures, so they'll make good workers. Mexicans and Filipinos alike, if I recall, were portrayed as biologically naturally suited to stoop labor. Sure. Yeah, there is a perception that because at least at the time there was a widespread perception that Filipinos were short, like in terms of height, and that they were closer to the ground, and that again their sort of background um, in the Philippines, sort of doing kind of uh, sort of growing up in a kind of agricultural society, made them sort of more suitable to this kind of work. Yeah, so there is you know a lot of this is projection, right? <laughs> they love it, <laughs> right? Because they're doing it, and because they have no other choice, that must mean that they love it. Right. So there's a kind of frequent discourse during this time that, you know, they're contented, right? This is the kind of work that they were born to do. This is the kind of work they love to do. And, you know, 
for sure, you know, there's no um, expectation that they'll they'll fight back. And of course, uh, pretty quickly learn some hard lessons there that they do fight back and that um, they're far from content in their position in the social order. Yeah. But and before Filipinos got to the West Coast, as you referenced earlier, Filipino workers starting in 1906 began a large scale migration to Hawaii where the sugar industry was booming. As the U.S. sees the islands in this planter-backed overthrow of the monarchy in 1893, speaking of things that I don't think Americans, by and large, are very familiar with, what were the factors that made Filipino workers so attractive to Hawaiian planters? Well, it's a similar story to the one we were just talking about with Mexicans, right? There's sort of there was a, a kind of fear amongst the the sugar planters um, that um, the Japanese had become too kind of politically uh, engaged that because they dominated. The sugar plantations are demographically uh, by that period. They were increasingly uh, sort of engaging kind of labor actions like strikes. Um, so there was a real kind of incentive or kind of urgency for the Hawaiian Sugar Planters Association to find someone to help challenge kind of the Japanese kind of um, oppositional culture, uh, in particular kind of you know labor militancy. And the belief was that uh, Filipinos who are sort of maybe more loyal to the U.S., or at least that was the perception, uh, would make a good uh, foil for the Japanese, right? And that because of lack of familiarity between the two groups, that it was unlikely that they would form any kind of political alliances together. And because the plantations themselves, you know, were kind of racially structured, right? Different groups were assigned to different jobs. They got different rates of pay. Uh, the goal was to kind of keep them at each other's throats and to prevent them from uh, joining together, which ultimately fails, right? As they sort of find common ground, Japanese and Filipino workers, uh, and sort of work together throughout the 1920s to kind of challenge uh, planter domination in the islands. Yeah. What were the conditions that Japanese and Filipino workers were organizing against? And to what degree were Japanese and Filipino workers able to overcome management's efforts to pit Filipino and Japanese workers against each other? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, you know, it's a very, you know, conventional kind of plantation system in Hawaii, brutal very hot conditions. Almost all the plantations had a, a group of kind of um, what we call lunas, these kind of um, overseers or, or sort of foremen in the fields who would sort of ride around on horses with whips. And if someone was seen sort of slacking, would sort of crack the whip and sometimes assault workers. So the conditions were highly exploitative and in a pattern we would sort of see repeated on the West Coast terms of kind of pay and compensation were often sort of changed on the spot. You're hired whatever, 40 cents an hour. And then once you get there, you're paid 30 cents an hour. Another big challenge for this sort of group of workers was that, you know, often the plantations are very sort of geographically isolated. Uh, so there's no place to spend your money except in the kind of company stores, which were charged exorbitant prices. So it's very difficult to sort of make any headway in the Hawaiian plantations, right? The money you earned went almost always went right back to the plantation bosses to pay for your housing, to pay for um, your sort of consumer goods. And again, the sort of overall climate of kind of exploitation sort of was, you know, like something out of, you know, the 19th century where this sort of really brutal conditions and kind of uh, sadistic uh, overseers who rolled with an iron fist. Yeah. And these plantations, as you're describing, were total institutions in and of themselves. And then planters also exercised enormous control and sway over the entire Hawaiian economy and government and even the media. And it was the anti-union campaign was both racist and anti-communist. And you write, unfortunately, ultimately 
successful. Why? Yeah. So, I mean, this is sort of, again, a a thing that repeated uh, on the West Coast, right? Once sort of Filipinos and Japanese sort of join together and start sort of, you know, waging this sort of labor struggle to sort of unionize on the plantations, for sure they're met with with violence and kind of vitriol. But before long, like once we start to see a little, some real momentum being gained, um, sort of here we're talking about the kind of early 1920s to mid 1920s, the discourse shifts to, this is all about outside agitators, right? That these are kind of communists and Bolsheviks who are sort of infiltrating the islands. And any kind of even modest demands uh, from strikers and workers is sort of deemed to be sort of communist propaganda, right? We want a 10 cent raise. That's communist propaganda. This becomes a sort of go-to rhetorical device for uh, the planters is to uh, sort of dismiss or denounce any kind of effort to kind of elevate, you know, kind of workers' sort of rights or the conditions of work as sort of a, a communist conspiracy. And then what happens when Filipino workers begin to migrate in large numbers from Hawaii to West Coast fruit and vegetable farms and also to Alaska's canned salmon industry? Were they were they more successful in organizing on the continent than they had been in Hawaii? They were, right? So, I mean, it takes some time for sure. So the arrival of Filipinos on the West Coast is sort of a late 1920s uh, phenomenon. And it sort of coincides just by sheer luck with a kind of initiative kind of handed down by the the Comintern, the Communist International, um, to kind of redouble efforts to organize the rural proletariat. So in the case of the U.S., right, the CPUSA gets this directive and says, okay, Let's make some modest effort <laughs> to organize uh, farm workers on the West Coast. They don't put a lot of resources into it, but it's, you know, uh, something that they do spend some time trying to uh, engage with. I mean, the first uh, efforts are in Southern California, and I think they have basically three organizers to organize all of Southern California. And the, one of the challenges, of course, is they don't have any experience. These three organizers, I forget um, the names, I think actually Eugene Dennis, who later became uh, uh, chairman of the the CPUSA, was one of these early um, figures. And they were actually living in Los Angeles at the time, these three organizers uh, working to organize the unemployed in Los Angeles and then get this order, go out into the rural districts and organize some farm workers. Um, and, you know, don't, it's a very specific kind of industry. This reminds me of, of, of Hammer and Ho, which I'm interviewing on soon. Oh, OK. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. This CP cadre from various parts of the country. You're going to Alabama. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Well, <laughs> you sort of get the impression, right? These city kids, you know, New York lefties, like, go out to, you know, Eastern California and go organize 4,000 Filipino and Mexican farm workers is a challenge that they may not have been quite ready for at the time. But I mean, to their credit, right, the, the CP rate puts themselves on the line, right? They face really remarkable levels of violence from sort of local police and local vigilantes who, when they care to get word that not only these Filipino and Mexican workers talking about going on strike and demanding better treatment and better wages, but they're aligned with the Communist Party, right? And that sort of raises some some significant kind of red flags, literally, uh, that um, these guys are trouble. So the growers have sort of work quickly with local law enforcement to kind of uh, suppress um, these early endeavors. And one of the lessons from the kind of early period of CP organizing, this is sort of 1930 to 1932, is that sort of coming in, you know, the strategy tended to be CP organizers would hear about some strike activity somewhere in California, and they would show up after it already sort of started and sort of try to take over. Uh, and they sort of learned the hard way that that wasn't the best way <laughs> to, uh, and sort of, you know, that we're going to lead this strike versus having kind of rank and file workers as part of the leadership. And that starts to change 
around 1933. And a big uh, factor here is um, a guy named Sam Darcy, uh, who was a, a, a CP, uh, kind of high-ranking, relatively high-ranking CP official from New York City, uh, gets sent to California essentially as punishment, <laughs> right? He's seen as a kind of overly militant, kind of workerist kind of figure, uh, potentially rising star in the party who <laughs> threatens some other established party figures. So they decide to send him out to California essentially as kind of banishment. We'll send him out to California. It's impossible to organize <laughs> these farm workers and we'll never see him again. And his, his reputation will be discredited uh, in the party. And it turns out he takes up this task, you know, with enthusiasm. Right, he sort of he sets up shop in Northern California and immediately changes strategy. Right, he's sort of very attentive to kind of worker sort of concerns and grievances, and immediately sort of shifts strategy to try to kind of promote rank and file workers into the leadership, Filipino and Mexican. Uh, and he's just a better tactician. Right, he has a better sense of when you're talking about a kind of industry like agriculture, timing of a strike matters a lot. You don't strike at the beginning of the harvest, you strike at the end, right, when things are ripe. And if someone's not there to pick them, it'll go bad, it'll spoil, right, and you'll lose the whole crop, right? So he's much more strategically savvy than the previous group. Uh, And again, he wins a lot of favor from sort of workers on the ground because he's, again, he's on the front lines. He takes a number of really vicious beatings from local vigilantes and sort of police, and he sort of, you know, leads by example, right? He's sort of not one of these guys on the sidelines giving orders. He's in the fray uh, repeatedly uh, trying to kind of, you know, uplift. And we should also say, you know, that for sure material conditions shaped, you know, the kind of disposition of Filipinos, you know, towards these kind of left-wing sort of union activities. But a big part of the attraction for them, too, was that there were some strings attached. They said, yeah, you know, we're open to aligning with these CP unions, but we want something in return beyond just the obvious, right? Sort of some material um, sort of gains, right? We also want a more explicit kind of anti-imperialist message uh, from these organizations, like the, the unions to have a really explicit anti-imperialist and kind of uh, anti-fascist kind of uh, program. And also that, you know, be more explicit about kind of opposing essentially what we today we call racial capitalism, right? They have to hit American racism head on, right? We can't sort of make that a secondary issue. So the CP more or less agrees. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we'll sort of link (laughs) the sort of domestic kind of exploitation to the sort of conditions of anti-imperialism, right? So in the case of the Filipinos, uh, the Filipino workers, uh, the issue is, you know, take a strong stand against U.S., you know, kind of colonialism in the Philippines. And once the CP agrees to do that, it makes them a lot more attractive to these kind of rank and file workers, and one of the, you know, the kind of, there's a lot of great stories about sort of really large strikes on the West Coast during the kind of 1933 to 1935 period. But one of the kind of most, I think, notable was sort of during the, the kind of infamous waterfront workers strike in 1934 and the general strike of that same year. Um, there was actually a fair number of Filipinos who worked uh, on the waterfront and mostly kind of, kind of longshoremen-y warehouse worker type jobs. But during the general strike, right, which Which is where Harry Bridges was the head of the left wing ILWU. That's right. Um, And um, but during the kind of general strike period, which I think was in July of 1934, roughly 5000 Filipino farm workers all over the state walked out of their jobs in solidarity with the kind of general strike. So for sure, there was a kind of growing sense of kind of linked fate, right, that the kind of politics of the period lent themselves to some of the kind of 
beyond, again, sort of just workplace rights, the issues of kind of anti-fascism and kind of anti-imperialism became more front and center for, I think, the sort of CP culture on the West Coast. And, and another part of the story is that some of these Filipino activists who become kind of figure, major figures in the kind of um, labor organizing uh, on the West Coast find themselves in the kind of popular front community uh, in Los Angeles, sort of hanging out with sort of the writers and these kind of left-wing kind of fellow travelers and activists, you know, in Hollywood, the most famous uh, figure here being Carlos Bulosan, the kind of notable kind of um, novelist and, and poet who becomes sort of immersed in kind of popular front culture during the 19, mid-1930s. And he's sort of like a go-between between sort of the CP, uh, formal CP officials and the kind of popular front organizations in Los Angeles and to a lesser degree, the Bay Area. And this, to clarify for listeners, is where the Third Asiatic Invasion intersects with your current book project. Well, so the, I work on many projects. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> one project is about what we were just talking about, is about these kind of radical um, labor radicals in the 1930s and 40s on the West Coast, mostly Filipino and Mexican, uh, as well as sort of efforts to kind of persecute them through the kind of McCarthyist era. And the ILWU, who we just alluded to, right, the sort of Filipinos ultimately become the kind of um, largest block of, of members in the ILWU branch in Seattle, which was called Local 7 at the time. And, you know, many of the, the themes we've been talking about, the sort of commitment to both class struggle, but also to kind of anti-imperialism and anti-fascism become a central feature of the kind of agenda of that union, right? So they frequently put out kind of brochures and pamphlets denouncing U.S. You know, involvement in the Korean War, denouncing kind of, you know, anti-miscegenation laws, right? So they see these sort of political struggles as linked anti-racism, anti-fascism, anti-imperialism is all kind of interlinked through the, the kind of vessel of the trade union, right? The ILWU, of course, the famously kind of progressive union uh, who remains a kind of political force today. Let's turn to the specifics of the nativist movement, the anti-Filipino nativist movement. What sort of organizations made up the West Coast movement in particular? How did it manage to bring together labor, portions of labor, small farmers, portions of the elite, patriotic organizations of force that brought them all together to propel decades of mobilization, repeated mobilization against Asian migration? One of the things that I sort of didn't quite um, explicitly acknowledged was one of the reasons that Filipinos who were sort of, were sort of leaned towards labor militancy uh, were drawn to the CP unions was because the sort of main union, the American Federation of Labor, was totally hostile to Filipinos. In fact, the first real kind of advocacy on behalf of or in favor of Filipino exclusion was the American Federation of Labor, who uh, anticipated <laughs> Filipino migration before most other people did. And starting in the mid-1920s, started passing resolutions at their national conventions to ban or bar uh, Filipino immigration to the United States. So they're a kind of early adopter of <laughs> Filipino exclusion, right, the AFL. So for sure, they're not very interested in organizing Filipino farm workers, which again, part of the backstory and why they sort of leaned into the kind of CP unions. So American federal like labor, right, the kind of indispensable enemy kind of argument going back to the 19th century where labor, like the Working Man's Party, had played a real instrumental role in Chinese exclusion. It sort of carries over. But the sort of more, I'd say, impactful organizations here are these sort of patriotic organizations like the American Legion and the Grange. 
think the VFW had a role here as well. And then these sort of grower um, coalitions, right? The most infamous organization was called the Associated Farmers, which were a kind of almost like a paramilitary organization made up of like powerful growers who hired goons <laughs> to attack and assault uh, strikers across the straight state in uh, the mid 1930s. But these, but just to clarify, these growers were not against Filipino migration. They were against Filipino labor organization, though they were plenty happy to use popular racist anti-Filipino sentiment to crush labor organizing when that suited them like they did in the Salinas Valley lettuce fields in, in 33 and 34. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, that's an important clarification, right, that the kind of um, embrace or tolerance of, of Filipino immigrants only went so far, you know, and in, up until the kind of mid-1930s, one of the the kind of reasons that, you know, Filipino exclusion had a tough time getting momentum was because agribusiness um, opposed it, right? They wanted Filipino workers. But by the mid-1930s, when the kind of labor militancy ticked up so kind of markedly, that's when agribusiness sort of washed their hands, right? They're like, we, we're not going to sort of sit by idly. These people are way too, these immigrants are way too uh, militant or radical. Um, we're no longer willing to kind of step in to prevent uh, exclusion. So ultimately, it boils down to the sort of, as long as they're willing to sort of stay in their place, they're fine, Right, meaning agribusiness is okay with them. In fact, you know, is happy to have uh, Filipinos uh, working for them. But once they start engaging in kind of labor activism and militancy, that's a bridge too far. That's when um, exclusion becomes palatable for agribusiness. And relatedly, you write that the Western farm bloc shifted on the question of restricting Japanese migration, which they had opposed to supporting it. Once Japanese farmer workers started to become Japanese farmers who competed with them. Yeah, and that becomes a, a sort of complicated issue, too, when there's a, a conflict between Filipino farm workers and sort of Japanese small Japanese small farm operators that sort of plays out during this period. Ultimately, right, World War II and internment sort of quells some of that conflict. But yeah, th- there's a kind of fear that that if Filipinos don't remain in the sort of their place, that they'll potential, be potential competitors down the line. So Alien land laws are obviously one sort of piece of the story here in trying to prevent further, whatever, penetration of Asians into the kind of actual farming side or grower side of of that equation. It seemed like there was, in the case of, of Japanese immigrants, nativist and agricultural interests alike were concerned with Japanese starting their own farms because on the one hand, Japanese were transgressively living the life of a free white settler and that posed sort of a contradiction in terms of race and political economy. And then, but on the other side, just much more straightforwardly with business, they were, they were competition. Absolutely. Right. And so that was, I think one of the lessons learned is we need to forestall that nip that in the bud and prevent that from happening. And, you know, by the time Filipinos arrived in large numbers, right, the alien land laws were in effect in most of the West coast states. So that sort of threat was no longer as uh, present but yeah, it sort of plays out in different ways in terms of Filipino-Japanese relations, right? There's actually a fair amount of kind of labor activity on Japanese-owned farm by Filipino workers who sort of suggest, I think, rightfully that Japanese owners are no different than white owners. They're engaging the same exploitative practices as the white growers. And similar stuff takes place in the Alaskan canneries. That's right. And this is another case of right um, the kind of divide and conquer segregated kind of occupational niches within the cannery system. 
And for sure, some sort of rivalry, right? The kind of older Chinese and Japanese workers feeling a little threatened by the sort of new influx of younger uh, Filipino workers. But the conflict is somewhat muted. I mean, they sort of ultimately not sim- similar to the Hawaii situation, joined together at times, sort of in these kind of multiracial sort of unions in Alaska. But by the kind of, you know, late 1930s, you know, a lot of those older groups of workers sort of aged out of the kind of frontline work in the cannery. So it became a really Filipino-dominated industry by the kind of late 1930s. I forget what the percentage is, but it's a really large majority of workers in that industry are are Filipino. Where did this dominant idea come from that Asian labor was inherently unfree and thus both a threat to white workers and fundamentally incompatible with democratic citizenry? Yeah, well, I think that the sort of link to this idea of their sort of colonial condition made them sort of incapable of rising to the level of the free worker. Subordination was sort of baked into them because of their sort of four centuries of sort of colonial subordination. So there was a kind of belief that they they just were incapable of kind of throwing off that, I don't know, deep-seated subordination and kind of engaging as sort of free labor, that they were sort of by their very nature um, unfree. But this was also shaped by the nativist framing of of Chinese so-called coolie labor decades prior. That's right. So a fear that, you know, that Asians in general represented this sort of threat to the kind of white working man that sort of culturally, politically, socially, that they were too different and too some sort of civilizational argument, right? That their civilization couldn't fully, I don't know, grasp free labor, right? That they were naturally sort of clannish and stuck together and worked uh, sort of operate in a very different sort of, um, I guess, cultural level than than white workers and all the, the sort of discourse during this time about meat versus rice kind of argument that was in the Gompers pamphlet, right, that they're sort of so debased because of their sort of civilizational and colonial histories that they just sort of stand in opposition by their very nature to kind of free white labor. It sort of frames them as Asian workers as inherently subservient to the boss in the same way that bosses did at certain moments in a more positive way. Right. And then, of course, you know, when they no longer fit that stereotype, then it becomes a question of how do we make sense of this? And the answer is almost always it's the outside agitators, it's the communists, uh, it's the troublemakers. And in the case of Filipinos, there's a kind of interesting agreement. The growers uh, and a lot of the, the kind of early CP organizers sort of agree that Filipinos are the most militant of the workers in Western agriculture, uh, their explanations are different, right? The growers say, well, it's because uh, they're impulsive. It's because of, you know, the kind of cultural legacy of Spanish rule made them sort of naive and gullible, uh, right? So they're easily manipulated by, you know, communist organizers. In the case of communists, where they said, well, no, this is really about the material conditions of work, as well as the kind of legacies of empire, that these people, um, these Filipinos are militant because of their lived experience, right? That they're sort of responding to conditions on the ground, uh, both in the Philippines under sort of colonial rule, but also in the kind of exploitative conditions on the farms and canneries. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at Patreon dot com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by The New Press, which has loads of great titles perfect for dig listeners like you. 
One that you might like is Immigration Matters, edited by Ruth Milkman, Deepak Bhargava, and Penny Lewis. When the Biden administration announced a week ago that they intended to limit refugee admissions to the historically low cap set by Trump, the outcry in response led the White House to change course by the end of the day. As immigration reform remains a governing priority, it's crucial the administration takes the necessary steps, including lifting the refugee cap, to bring the country's laws into line. The important new collection, Immigration Matters, offers a blueprint for these reforms. Next Tuesday, April 27th at 12 p.m. EDT, there will be an online launch for this book. Register at immigrationmatters.eventbrite.com for the online launch event. Immigration Matters, edited by Ruth Milkman, Deepak Bhargava, and Penny Lewis. Out next week from the New Press. As you referenced earlier, labor was not entirely a monolith when it came to nativism. Filipino leaders had close relations with Harry Bridges in San Francisco. They participated in the 34 general strike. But obviously, a lot of labor leaders on the West Coast were virulently anti-Asian in general and virulently anti-Filipino in particular. How did the the left-right split, if that's the right way to phrase it, the left-right split in labor over anti-Asian nativism and racism relate to these broader left-right divides in labor between, say, labor radicals on the one hand and craft unionists or whoever on the other about how to think about the labor movement and how to think about capitalism? Yeah, well, I think it, it's really important, right, that there's a two tendencies here, right? There's a kind of business unionism strategy, right? I mean, the sort of ILWU is sort of a response to this sort of more assimilationist kind of collaborationist kind of tendency within the AFL during this period that they're responding to. And, you know, the CIO, of course, comes out of aftermath of the 1934 strike. Um, so there's sort of these two tendencies and the CIO is much more sort of, I think, broadly politically engaged about not only kind of worker rights, but also kind of international politics. And of course, the kind of purges of the late 1940s are a reflection of the sort of fear that these unions are overly political, that they're overly militant, that they've been infiltrated by communists. And there's sort of the good unions, which are the AFL business unions. And then there's the bad guys who are the kind of left-wing insurgents who don't stick to sort of shop for politics, but also talk about things like anti-imperialism or anti-fascism or anti-racism. And this becomes a kind of, I think, an enduring schism. I've always felt like the exclusionary labor politics of craft unionism resonate with the sort of exclusionarily racist politics often embraced by craft unionists during this period, which in both cases misapprehend the relationship between labor and capital. Yeah. And I think, you know, this ultimately sort of plays out in the kind of that particular strand of unionism, which is, you know, it's about sort of monopolizing kind of, you know, the craft unions of monopolizing the sort of privileged place in the labor market for this exclusive group of members and everyone else is on the outside looking in. I think a lot of the unions during this period really kind of bought into that mentality that sort of looking out for themselves and not being particularly interested in other groups of workers in the same firm or other kind of workers in other sectors of the economy. And I think obviously to the detriment of the kind of organizing uh, potential uh, those unions. And of course, the same period we see this sort of you know, racketeering kind of tendency of a lot of the kind of more business unions 
like the longshoremen on the East Coast are sort of the polar opposite of the longshoremen we see emerging on the West Coast, right? The kind of more conservative kind of accommodationist unions, like I think it's the ILA uh, on the East Coast, and then the kind of radical sort of ILWU culture on the on the West Coast that, again, sort of does not limit itself ever to kind of just the, the kind of shot for politics. It's always about the kind of larger political struggle, uh, for sure, during World War II that sort of plays out. But also, you know, in the kind of decades after World War II, right, when we think about the ILWU, like refusing to unload cargo from apartheid South Africa or refusing to, you know, kind of unload cargo going to El Salvador during the 1980s, during the U.S. proxy wars there, right? So there's a kind of interesting kind of legacy that I think was born in the 30s and 40s of this kind of um, really kind of social movement unionism geared towards a larger, that sort of looked at sort of local politics and international politics as sort of intertwined and inseparable. And that sort of, you know, the saw kind of class struggle as a kind of both a sort of local but also international issue and that those two things couldn't be decoupled. Yeah, and it's no coincidence that the labor forces and organized labor that were more oppositional to capital were also the more explicitly anti-racist pretty consistently. Right, and I think that's one of the, the big challenges. You know, I think, you know, Robin Kelly's work is really instructive here because he helped, like, I think, break the kind of stigma of writing about the role of the communists in the kind of early civil rights movement, including the, the sort of labor rights movement. I mean, when we think about that legacy, I mean, think about the example of the Scottsboro Boys, right? The kind of role that communists played in publicizing that that case. And obviously, you know, during the McCarthy era, the kind of... Sh- sh- accusation of being a communist was itself very debilitating, right? So we saw a real dramatic shift during that era where unions, political activists of all stripes tried to kind of separate themselves from the kind of stain of communism. And I think it had a a pretty dramatic impact on the kind of course of politics of the civil rights movement going forward. You can anticipate, and now I'm thinking about the 1960s era, right, that any time a political civil rights movement or sort of labor rights movement escalated demands, they'd be denounced as the the work of communists. So there was a kind of default kind of, you know, rejection of that and to try to kind of rid oneself of any uh, potential sort of association uh, with communism. But ultimately, I think the the challenge or the problem there is that this sort of downplays the kind of central role that these communist activists played in kind of early civil rights activism and helped to set the stage for later cohorts of, of activists in the 1960s. Right. They sort of learned from uh, and sort of built on those sort of political struggles, but at the same time, tried to kind of keep themselves sort of one step away because of the, the fear of the kind of stain of communism being affixed to anyone who was engaging in kind of lefty liberal politics during the 1960s and 70s. Zooming out to the national level in terms of nativist politics, to what extent was anti-Filipino nativism a regionally specific West Coast issue? And then how did West Coast nativism more generally compare and relate to nativism in the Northeast, where you had New England patricians involved with the Immigration Restriction League who took the lead on attacking Southern and Eastern European immigration, something that, as far as I can tell, was not a big concern for West Coast nativists. Should we differentiate these different but overlapping nativisms in the late 19th and early 20th centuries? I mean, I think, you know, there's some parallels for sure. I mean, nativism has a long history. It precedes Filipinos. But I would say, you know, what what's sort of striking about the case of the, sort of the Filipino case is that the ferocity of the response, both in terms of the rhetorical ferocity and also just the kind of proliferation of anti-Filipino violence during the 1920s and 30s, right? Dozens of 
anti-Filipino race riots and expulsion campaigns. So it is a regional issue, but the nativist lobby, which goes from you know, local kind of activists to you know West Coast politicians, are trying to convince the rest of the country that we need to do something about this, right? You may not experience the problem uh, with Filipinos in the Northeast, but if we don't stop them now, it'll eventually be your problem. So, you know, it's a regional problem where they're trying to find a sort of national solution through federal legislation and convincing the rest of the country to sort of get on board remains the kind of uphill battle, right? A lot of elected leaders in other parts of the country just don't see this as something worthy of, you know, addressing. And there's also constituency sort of in the U.S. Congress in particular, but also, I guess, in the executive branch that the U.S. cannot bar Filipinos while it's a colony, right? That would be an embarrassment, a kind of diplomatic embarrassment, because we would be the only imperial power that bans its own colonial subjects from, from coming to the metropole, right? And that would sort of set a bad precedent. So there's a fear that this would be a PR disaster, right? So even though there might be some sympathy at the national level to Filipino exclusion, it can't be done under the circumstances of the Philippines being a colony of the U.S. So it's a regional problem, but it has a kind of national character in the sense that it's about, you know, federal, well, it's both about imperial policy, but also about sort of uh, national immigration policy. In terms of the rampant anti-Filipino violence across the West Coast, what was really striking and chilling was that nativists pointed to the white mob violence as evidence to make their case against Filipinos. It was white mob violence that they used to make what was initially a regional issue into a more nationally salient one, which revealingly is entirely the opposite of what took place with the black civil rights movement a few decades later in a different kind of liberal Cold War political culture when civil rights activists used publicity around Southern violence against segregationists. In this case, the anti-Filipino nativists were like, look what the Filipinos are making us do to them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So this sort of pressure campaign to kind of add Filipinos to the kind of list of excluded groups um, ultimately, you know, kind of hits a dead end. Right? They try repeatedly. There's bills offered in, in Congress that, that don't go anywhere, again, largely because of this sort of concern that, you know, imperial powers don't ban their own subjects. And, you know, some of the kind of uh, sort of congressmen sort of note that um, Filipinos travel under a U.S. passport, so if we were to ban them, that would sort of put us in this really embarrassing place where Filipinos would be able to travel anywhere in the world on a U.S. passport except to the U.S., right? That's a bad look. So that, that's sort of one issue in terms of the kind of reticence about sort of enacting sort of Filipino exclusion. The violence is striking. You're right in terms of there's quite a bit of support <laughs> for these vigilante actions. I mean, there's a kind of modest, like, these, some of these people went too far with these kind of, you know, multi-day riots and expulsion campaigns where, you know, dozens, hundreds of Filipinos were, were injured and hospitalized, uh, but that they brought it on themselves, right? That they were responsible. And some were killed. That's right. And that vigilante violence was justified or extra legal action was justified because the federal government failed to do its job, right? That they refused to address this problem by barring Filipino immigrants. So we're going to take the law into our own hands and engage in essentially direct <laughs> action to solve the problem ourselves. And we'll drive these uh, people out of our communities if they don't sort of get back into their place. So 
even though perpetrators of these kind of violent vigilante campaigns are often well known <laughs> and known in the community, they rarely suffer any kind of legal consequences because as was typical of this time in the case of Watsonville, the most infamous riot, when that trial was being held for the people that were being accused of killing Fermin Tobera, one of the Filipino farm workers who was killed during that particular riot, right, the courthouse was overrun by supporters of the accused vigilantes, right, and demanded that they be let go, threatened to commit even more violence if they were convicted. So it wasn't just that the people were sort of silent, that people were actively in support of vigilante violence as a way of sort of teaching uh, Filipinos a lesson, you know, sending a larger lesson to Filipinos at other places on the West Coast, that if you get out of line, you will suffer consequences. And you're right that, I mean, one of the kind of striking parts of this story was that as these riots and kind of vigilante campaigns start to generate national media coverage, very good coverage, the kind of rioters and the kind of vigilantes and nativists start to say, listen, this is why you got to have Filipino exclusion, right? If you have Filipinos here, it invites violence, even though they were the ones who committed the violence, meaning the kind of vigilantes and kind of sort of local uh, whites. So they used <laughs> uh, the violence as a kind of kind of rationale for pushing their case for exclusion, saying that if you don't do something, there's going to be more violence because these people, meaning the Filipinos, don't get it, right? They won't stay on their side of the cutter line. They won't, they keep mixing with white women. Um, they sort of defy conventional racial norms in the U.S. So if you don't do something, meaning the federal government, we're going to have to take the law into our own hands to kind of enforce the color line uh, locally. You mentioned briefly that the big obstacle for nativists seeking exclusion of Filipino migrants was essentially the U.S. foreign policy establishment and their legislative allies. And I just think it's important here to pause and point out that foreign policy and geopolitics have long shaped immigration politics and come into conflict with nativist demands. We see that in the 1907 Gentlemen's Agreement on Japanese Migration, the ending of Chinese exclusion during World War II, the repeal of the National Origins Quotas Acts in 1965, and then the mass resettlement of refugees from Southeast Asia after the Vietnam War. I think there's something to learn from the fact that this sort of relationship begins to break down under the war on terror, actually, where there's no longer a sort of political impetus to resettle essentially colonial allies in in colonized countries like Afghanistan and Iraq. And we think that we can actually, and the U.S. political establishment reconciles itself to being kind of simultaneously imperialist and nativist. But prior to that, throughout U.S. history, there's a consistent tension between a sort of obviously racist imperial politics and the more aversive racist nativism. Yeah, that's a good point, right? So, you know, in my work, I sort of find that when we think about this idea of the racial state, we actually want to disaggregate that, right? So we tended to sort of see in the Filipino case that officials from like the State Department, for instance, tend to be much more sort of critical and skeptical of nativist politics thought that it was sort of insulting, right? You know, tend to think of, you know, the, the sort of international implications of kind of racist treatment or of kind of exclusionary treatment, often sort of testified at hearings about sort of the Filipino kind of problem, Filipino issues on behalf of Filipinos, suggesting that, you know, we shouldn't um, exclude them from the U.S. More generally, there was a kind of sense that there was a value in sort of treating them, <laughs> treating the Philippines and Filipinos relatively well compared to kind of the more kind of harsh kind of colonial methods. So there's 
definitely a, a kind of weird disjuncture between, and I think, you know, the U.S. military also tended to be kind of, had more interaction with the Philippines and so tended to be face off with some of the more kind of exclusionary nativist forces and kind of matters of, of national politics. Nothing was more central to anti-Filipino nativism and racism, like nothing, it seems, than interracial sex and marriage and even dancing, which was tied up with this idea that Filipinos were seen by whites as uniquely indifferent to racist social norms in the U.S. Why was this the biggest scare issue of all? What threat was Filipino men's sexuality seen to pose? Yeah, well, it was, yeah, probably the most, generate the most media attention for sure. I mean, it sort of combines with the kind of growing sense of labor militancy <laughs> that they've sort of gone red. But yeah, the case of the, the kind of sexual panics about sort of Filipino men and white women uh, generated a huge amount of kind of attention uh, on the West Coast. There was a, a sort of perception that was sort of inflamed by the sort of nativist <laughs> leaders that that Filipinos were uniquely in some ways, too Americanized, right? That they sort of gone to these sort of U.S. colonial schools, learned about sort of equality of man and sort of freedom of association. Uh, and when they got to the U.S., they thought that they had the perfect right to kind of mix socially with whites, including white women. And because the Filipino immigrant population during this time was overwhelmingly men, it's like I think 96% male during this time, um, young you know, men, there was a kind of a, a growing concern that you know, when they were in sort of engaging their non-work lives, right, that they went into town, that they were um, unusually kind of um, brazen in their attempts to kind of interact with uh, sort of white women. And one of the kind of notorious institutions during the kind of 20s and 30s was the taxi dance halls, right, these kind of leisure establishments slash nightclubs where women would be sort of employed by these clubs and men would sort of pay an entrance fee to go in and then would buy a, a, some tickets and then, you know, would pay one ticket to dance for one song to dance with a woman. So those were, you know, kind of well-known sort of leisure establishments during this time, but a particular kind of group of those um, establishments catered to kind of mixed race kind of dancing between usually men of color, in this case, Filipino men uh, and white women. Uh, and this was sort of seen as a gateway institution, right? that these men got the impression that these women liked them. And there was a lot of uh, chatter, right, that dating and kind of sexual liaisons grew out of these kind of interactions in the in the taxi dance clubs. Um, and taxi dance clubs tended to generate a lot of attention from kind of local law enforcement who saw them as vice-ridden kind of institutions. And there was efforts to sort of crack down on taxi dance halls. And, you know, one of the things that frustrated kind of law enforcement was every time they would develop uh, or every time they would try to close down these clubs, sort of Filipinos would find some new way to kind of subvert the existing laws. Dancing schools. Change the names. <laughs> That's right. They're dance academies. Um, these are teachers, not taxi dancers. Or they'd set them up right outside the city limits, right, to evade some municipal ordinance banning mixed race dancing. So this was all sort of sort of taken to be like this brazen defiance, right, that we've made it very clear to him what the rules are about the sort of the color line. And um, this population just refuses to kind of abide by that race line, right? So not only, do, you know, they're engaging in this kind of behavior in taxi dance halls and sort of trying to kind of whatever date or intermarry with whites, but that there's sort of flout laws in kind of public spaces like carnivals or state fairs where they sort of parade around using the language of the time and kind of, you know, flirt with white women openly and act like 
are free to do whatever they want. And that sort of scene as a provocation tended to be one of the sources of kind of vigilante violence, right? When Philippines were seen as sort of getting out of line in terms of interacting or mixing with white women, that tended to be a, a very kind of inflammatory act when it came to the local white population. Yeah, the nativists were really freaked out by the idea and reality that some substantial number of white women, often poor white women, wanted to be with Filipino men. And there was this idea that Filipino men tricked white women, as you write, quote, a false front of flashy attire and ostentatious behavior that belied their true status as uneducated menial laborers. What does that reveal, this notion that what was so threatening there was that Filipino men were able to sneak across the color line through class impersonation? Right. And this idea that, yeah, that they were sort of belying their real status, which was this kind of racially subordinated working class by wearing Macintosh suits, which is not unlike the kind of zoot suits of that period. You know, one of the frequent accusations was they flashed money rolls, right, that they would, you know, this kind of classic putting the big bill on the outside to make it seem like they weren't these sort of, you know, impoverished kind of, you know, farm workers, but it seemed like they were made men. And that was seen as like a deceptive form of dating um, to sort of win the attraction of white women. And you're right that there was this kind of concern that race mixing itself was a concern, of course, but that it was a kind of race mixing of the worst type, low grade Filipino kind of, you know, racial material mixing with the kind of most kind of um, demoralized, low class white women. And that if these two groups were to kind of <laughs> come together and sort of, you know, start families, you'd have a kind of real problem on your hands with the kind of the worst, in thinking here of the, the eugenics part of the argument, the kind of worst of the sort of biological seed stock coming together and producing a sort of future cohort of juvenile delinquents running around the West Coast. I absolutely love the white women race traders in your book, like the woman who worked at a dance hall who went arrested, said she was half Filipino because, quote, she was married to a man of that race. <laughs> Hilarious. <Yes. laughs> um, a lot of, yeah, there's some really interesting kind of efforts to like subvert the racial logics of, of the time. And we saw the same thing happen uh, with the kind of efforts to circumvent the kind of anti-miscegenation laws by some of the women would claim that they were Filipino or they, they would claim they're Native American, hoping to subvert the kind of prohibition on kind of white Filipino intermarriage. So yeah, people, I mean, because, you know, we know that race itself is a kind of so, you know, socially constructed category. Um, it's not surprising that sometimes people try to kind of play with that category to see if they can find ways to kind of undercut it or use it to their own ends. As you mentioned, the alarm at interracial intimacy was related to this notion that Filipinos were uniquely rebellious against the color line and indifferent to racist norms of deference and distance particularly when it came to dating and marrying white women. Were Filipinos, in fact, more indifferent to racist norms than, than Chinese and Japanese immigrants had been? Um, I think that's true. I think they were. And I think, again, the explanation that Filipinos themselves often use is, listen, you know, we read, you know, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln in our you know textbooks in the colonial schools in the Philippines. And so, you know, we were taught that, you know, we're equals, right, that they're sort of the institutions of American democracy are open to us, including the sort of free association with whomever we want. You know, and the, the interesting sort of example of that would be the, the Watsonville riots. For sure, there'd been some precipitating activity, right, just the kind of general sense that Filipinos are talking and sort of flirting with white women and there was a taxi dance hall. But the real kind of, you know, precipitating factor that sort of led to the actual outbreak was the publication of a pamphlet, a kind of Filipino-American kind of rejoinder to the local racist saying, 
we can mix with whoever we want, right? And again, sort of quoting sort of American founding fathers about sort of principles of equality, you know, equality of man. And this was seen as completely like crossing the line. How dare you use our own sort of democratic sort of rhetoric and sort of ideals against us to claim you you can mix with whoever you want. And that was really what sort of set off that particular set of rights was this kind of provocation, right? How dare you tell us that you are sort of on equal footing uh, with the white citizen? That's a no-go zone and it sort of prompted a really um, violent backlash from sort of local white community. I want to talk about some of the specifics of race ideology at the time in the in the U.S. You write that the first task of the U.S. imperial government in the Philippines was to use race science to examine Filipinos and then categorize them by tribal and racial groups. Why was such detailed science considered such an important tool of colonial governance? And like, what were the categorizations? What were the sorts of categorizations that ethnologists or whoever made? And then how did those categorizations shape U.S. rule? Yeah, well, I think, so the idea was sort of, you know, in the the backdrop is the sort of, you know, Filipino demands for independence, which of course were dismissed by colonial officials, but I think they wanted some quote-unquote science to sort of back up their claims that, you know, Filipinos were sort of not ready for or completely out of their depth when it came to the idea of national independence. And one way to do that was to sort of show that they were sort of belonged to the sort of lesser races of the globe. And I think it sort of syncs up with the kind of eugenics a kind of movement of this era. There was a kind of global racial hierarchy. And, you know, where did Filipinos fit into that hierarchy? And of course, they found they fit it close to the bottom, right? That they're sort of uh, analogous to sort of Native Americans in terms of their kind of lack of civilizational development, frankly called sort of natives and sort of Indians by sort of U.S. colonial officials during this time. There's also this kind of interesting thread in this sort of kind of speaks to the kind of pseudoscience of eugenics more broadly, that there was a belief that certain segments of the Filipino population, uh, the so-called Negritos, were actually their or- genetic origins in Africa, right? So this sort of an- another piece of evidence about sort of the, the lack of fitness for national <laughs> sort of independence was that these people were, have their sort of genetic or sort of genealogical origins in Africa, right? So you have legible categories, you know, kind of Indians as in Native Americans, people of African descent, were said to sort of be the kind of genetic or biological makeup of the Filipino population, which again sort of was used as evidence that, you know, in no way are these people anywhere close to being kind of ready for national kind of self-determination. These are sort of backwards peoples who need, again, a prolonged period and again, at least decades, if not a century of sort of colonial supervision before they'd be ready for kind of Republican institutions and and self-government. And the categories, there were an incredible number of them, and they were incredibly detailed. There were specific categorizations around people of part Chinese descent, around different ethnic groupings all over the country. That's right. And sort of, you know, in some ways, it sort of, you know, they made it up as they went along. (laughs) Yeah, these are kind of, not only was it a category, but there was the kind of interpretation of what the categories meant. Right, that the half Chinese are the most kind of insolent, right? That they're sort of the most sort of defiant. These are the ones that are sort of mixed up with the kind of independence movement because of their sort of mixed race background. Uh, and then there was the groups that were considered more sort of um, the uncivilized tribes that would need a much longer period or more kind of harsh version of sort of colonial discipline. Yeah, so to read the kind of ethnological surveys is to sort of be reading you know, essentially a kind of science fiction <laughs> categories that are invented to sort of 
meet the predetermined goal of demonstrating that these are people who are so sort of racially foreign and backwards that for sure they're not eligible or would not fit to become U.S. citizens, but they're also not fit to take care of their own lives. And culinarily, there was an obsession with dog eating. That's right. And this sort of is one of the, the features of the kind of Filipino kind of ex- exhibits at the, the World's Fairs, um, with this perception that their lack of civilization is evidenced in the fact that they eat um, dogs. So it's not only that the Filipino exhibit is sort of a spectacle in and of itself to see kind of natives in the so-called native habitats, like doing some kind of native dancing or kind of uh, customs, but the biggest attractions that they would sort of have featured on the the reader boards at the time was to watch them slaughter a dog and cook it and eat it, right? So people could, again, sort of see it with their own eyes, just how desperate these people were for kind of civilizational uplift, right? That these people are so outside the boundaries of civilization that they eat domesticated pets. What Americans think of as domesticated pets was just evidence of their kind of lack of kind of civilizational bona fides. And just to explain in a little in a little more detail what was going on at the, on at the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair in this Filipino exhibition this was this was 47 acres of land with more than 1100 Filipino human beings this racist hum, massive racist human zoo that's right and sort of meant to be part of this larger kind of set of exhibits of the kind of you know uncivilized peoples of the world right there's a native american exhibit the southern plantation exhibits right so this was a kind of visual spectacle for kind of um, sort of persuading kind of, I think, kind of ordinary white citizens to identify with the master race and with the kind of civilizing mission of empire and to see just how much work was to be done, right? Look how different and undeveloped these uh, people are. You can see with your own eyes, sort of the idea, I think, was sort of, tell me after visiting a, the Filipino exhibit that you think that they um, have any claim to sort of self-determination. And of course, the answer was no. Right? These are people who seem completely out of their depth, who seem so kind of underdeveloped or sort of stuck in a kind of primitive state that the idea of independence seems completely out of the question. You describe a number of racial taxonomies at work in the U.S. over time. There was a five races taxonomy there was a three races taxonomy, and then there was a common understanding theory of racial difference, which, you know, if I was interested in promoting white supremacy, I might go with the latter since it's, it's you know, more flexible. What, what were these different, and in retrospect, sometimes very bizarre seeming approaches, and why did they arise when they did? And why, in particular, did Filipinos' classification as Malays rather than Mongolians under the five races taxonomy create such a problem for nativists. Right. So, I mean, the kind of, you know, eugenic pseudoscience of this period, right, sort of, there's a there's some competing <laughs> sort of definitions on just how many racial groups there are and what separated race from ethnic group or nationality group was a sort of source of constant debate. In the five racial group scenario, there was sort of the red race, sort of Native Americans, there was this yellow race, there was the brown race, which was the Malay people, which the category that Filipinos tend to be located in is white and black. In the case of the kind of contestation over, you know, where Filipinos fit vis-a-vis discriminatory laws, there was a law in the books in California that barred whites from intermarrying with Asians, and the law specifically said Mongolians, right? So a number of kind of clever Filipinos who are trying to find a way around the law to marry their white fiancé, sort of 
utilize some of this sort of racial pseudoscience to say, listen, the law bars Mongolians from intermarrying with whites, but Filipinos are actually Malays or part of the brown race. So this law doesn't actually technically apply to us, right? And it becomes a kind of matter of a, a lot of legal contestation in the state of California. I, re- I recall at least one judge from your book who is like, I would love to do a racist ruling here, but the legislative history is clear that when California legislators sought to bar inter marriage between Mongolians and whites. They were referring to Chinese and Japanese people, not to Filipinos. Yeah, that's right. So then it becomes a question of, you know, um, you know, how do these, you know, how do we even define any of the boundaries of these categories? So, I mean, there's sort of two sort of, you know, scenarios there. One is that if you sort of look at the prevailing ethnological thinking of the time that Filipinos were in the Malay group, the brown race, so that technically the law shouldn't apply to them. But then you had the kind of more explicitly racist judges and kind of political officials who said, listen, they might not say Malay, but that's what they meant. That's what the California legislature meant. And they're not totally wrong about that. Of course, it was just a purely racist law. But, you know, the sort of reminds of the kind of original intent kind of arguments that we see in sort of current legal debates. Technically, right, if you accept that Filipinos are Malay, then the law didn't include them. So ultimately, Filipinos were uh, sort of judged to be or sort of ruled to be eligible to intermarry with whites. And the, in that particular case, the Roldan case, the, the justices said, listen, we get what you're saying to the nativists. And if you want to bar intermarriage between Filipinos and whites, just pass a new law or amend the current law, which is what happened, right? A few months after Filipinos eventually prevail in that particular case, right? They, where the judges say, yes, Filipinos were not included because <laughs> they're not Mongolians. And the state legislature just passes a new law saying, and, Mala- and Malays. So problem solved. Remarkably, it was only when anti-Filipino nativists formed an alliance in favor of Philippine independence with Midwestern agricultural interests and, weirdly enough, with Filipino nationalists that they won. How did this alliance take shape and how did it defeat these more foreign policy oriented political establishment sorts that favored continued colonial rule? You know, the the kind of nativist movement, which was really based in California, uh, had been trying for years to, you know, effectuate some kind of Filipino exclusion bill and, you know, came up empty handed repeatedly. And, And I think, you know, at a certain point I realized we're just not going to win this particular battle, right? But they sort of, one of the lessons they took away was the, the key issue is that as long as the Philippines is a colony of the U.S., we can't win this sort of uh, campaign for Philippine exclusion. So the light bulb went off at some point and said, as long as they're a colony of the U.S., well, if they're no longer a colony of the U.S., then that means potentially uh, we can address this issue in the way that uh, we'd like to. So they sort of switch gears, go back to the drawing board and figure, how can we assist in the kind of independence program, right? So they end up joining with a group of Midwestern uh, agribusiness interests, mostly kind of dairy uh, and sort of sugar beet farmers who are looking, um, who are sort of angry about Philippine imports, things like coconut oil and sort of uh, cane sugar from the Philippines. So they see the Philippine imports as a threat. So they, they're lobbying completely independent of anyone else for um, Philippine independence. And then, of course, in the Philippines itself, sort of longstanding campaign for uh, Filipino self-determination, right? And there's some resident commissioners uh, in the U.S. and Washington, D.C. who are, have been lobbying for, you know, decades for Philippine independence. So 
the nativists end up forming a sort of alliance or coalition with these two sort of very separate groups of people. The nativists and the kind of Midwestern agribusiness are sort of very kind of racist and hostile to Filipinos, whereas the nationalists obviously are sort of more interested in kind of national self-determination. But they figure if they can combine forces, they can all get what they want, right? The Filipino nationalists want independence, the sort of Midwestern agribusiness and want, you know, a sort of tariff. You know, they don't want Philippine products to enter the U.S. duty-free anymore, right? They're looking to get rid of the competition. And the nativists just want exclusion, right? And so ultimately, they prevail uh, with the passage of the uh, Tidings-McDuffie Act in 1934, which is a kind of interesting, it's a kind of independence bill, but it's a probationary independence bill. So over a 10-year period, the Philippines, if it meets certain benchmarks, will be granted its independence from the United States. Uh, but one provision of the law goes into effect immediately in 1934, which is the immigration exclusion provision, right? <laughs> that goes into effect right now, independence not for 10 years. And again, only if the Philippines meets these benchmarks, right? Presumably, if it didn't meet some of the benchmarks, the U.S. could hold on to them uh, for a longer period of time. But the kind of intervening force, of course, is World War II, <laughs> where the U.S. Is sort of is booted out of the Philippines in sort of 19. 41, 42, and then it becomes a sort of occupied by the Japanese Imperial Army. The, the delayed independence law mandated that, that Filipinos immediately be restricted to the lowest immigration quota in the world, 50 people per year. It also immediately imposed tariffs and restrictions on Filipino imports to the U.S. while keeping the Philippines wide open to American imports, all again while pushing the date for independence 10 years into the future. How did that obviously unfair, unequal arrangement come about. And and do you think that in a way it was it was a prescient model for the entire post-colonial world, world system that was soon to follow? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. Well, I think, you know, the case of the, the kind of lowest quota, which was 50 per year, which was less than the 100 per year quota that all the other, even the other kind of excluded Asian countries got, was essentially a kind of nod to the nativists. Like we get you know, you're kind of a resentment and anger about the kind of so-called Filipino problem. So we're going to sort of send a message about that sort of reflects the racial animus of the time, uh, especially I think about the, the two issues we've already talked about. One is the kind of racial crossing of the race line and the other is the kind of labor militancy. So it's a kind of, I think, not so subtle kind of punishment, right? You're going to have even less than a smaller quota than uh, other kind of adversaries of the U.S. because of your sort of insolence. I think, you know, the, again, it reveals the asymmetries between, you know, of, of empire, right? That immigration immediately stops and, you know, there's a tariff imposed on Philippine imports uh, starting in 1934 as well, right? So, you know, I think you would probably have to accept or agree that, you know, it's a terrible deal for Filipinos in, in many ways, but it's the only deal to be had. You don't have any leverage or negotiating position. <laughs> You're dealing with the empire. So they accept these kind of disadvantaged terms just because of the kind of, I think the Philippine sort of negotiators think this is our only shot. So we've got to accept, even if these terms are insulting or disadvantageous, you know, the kind of big goal of independence is, is worth making a few compromises for. After the Tidings-McDuffie Act, there was even a, a law that sought to voluntarily but strongly encourage massive numbers of Filipinos to repatriate, to leave the U.S. and go back, as though the immigration restriction wasn't enough. There was a huge enough push to remove Filipinos who were already in the U.S. that it became law. And it turned out 
interestingly, to be an utter failure. Why why did the repatriation legislation pass? Why did it fail? And what did that failure reveal about what nativists misunderstood about Filipino migration? Well, so, yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that becomes very clear to the sort of nativists, right, they are certainly happy to get a victory on Filipino exclusion, right, the Tidy McDuffie Act. But so much of what had driven the kind of anti-Filipino movement was the kind of, you know, problems of sort of race mixing and sort of labor militancy. And banning future immigration does nothing to address those problems, right? So the, the Filipinos who were, at least according to the natives, causing all the trouble were still in the country, still mixing with white women, still kind of engaging the sort of uh, labor militancy. So the next stage of kind of the anti-Filipino movement is sort of enactment of these sort of a series of repatriation bills um, targeting Filipinos. And I think, you know, this is meant to be a kind of compromise, right? Because we know, of course, that the federal government had no problem mass deporting <laughs> Mexicans. But there was a perception because the Filipinos in the U.S. had come as colonial subjects that they didn't want to go with just the kind of mass deportation route because that would have been seen as a little insulting. And it was still a colony <laughs> at the time. Right, it was on this probationary period, but it was still a colony. So a mass deportation of the colonial subjects that you claimed that you were <laughs> benevolently assimilating seemed, you know, kind of hard to defend. So it was a voluntary repatriation campaign. I think they've passed four different bills. Uh, and the, the kind of hitch was that if you accepted this repatriation offer, which the federal government would pay for you to go back to the Philippines on Uncle Sam's dime, as long as you signed a contract promising never to return to the U.S., so basically, you were getting a, a one-way ticket to uh, the Philippines if you promised never to return. And, you know, Filipinos in the U.S., sort of activists in particular, sort of viewed this as a kind of what they call a disguise form of deportation, as an insult. Uh, and also sort of said, you know, we don't have anything to go back to, right? It's still a colony of the U.S. Option or opportunities for sort of upward mobility are very limited. And, you know, probably some kind of concern about sort of going back empty-handed. Right. So a tiny number of Filipinos end up sort of taking the U.S. up on their sort of repatriation offer, despite all these sort of PR campaigns, advertising campaigns. This is a great deal. Go back to your homeland. And there was one of the advertisements said you'll be greeted by, you know, brass bands in Manila, sort of homecoming heroes. Um, You know, (laughs) Filipinos were not dumb. (laughs) They knew that was um, BS. So. Very few of them ever took up, you know, they had lives in the U.S. by this time. They knew that the the chances of sort of economic opportunities and mobility were likely better in the U.S. despite the exploitative conditions they worked under, just were not generally interested in returning back to the Philippines. Your book ends with World War II, which remade the U.S. relationship to Filipinos and the Philippines and also didn't remake them, those relationships in various ways. The war mobilized Filipinos in the U.S. into the U.S. military and also saw the U.S. take command of Filipino troops and guerrillas in the Pacific. And whereas World War I had excited really virulent anti-immigrant sentiment, though it did open a a window to citizenship for, for foreign soldiers, World War II, by contrast, forced the U.S. to adopt this more pluralistic account of American democracy. Why did World War II force these openings? How did Filipinos take advantage of that unfolding situation? And then how did things then change so quickly, so quickly that the U.S. government actually went out of its way after the war to screw Filipino war veterans out of their benefits? Well, in the first part of the question, right, there's sort of, I think, you know, in the case of the Filipinos, a kind of 
parallel to the sort of double V campaign, you know, the sort of African-Americans during World War II, the kind of victory over um, fascism abroad and over racism at home. So there is a kind of sense that the war provides a potential opportunity for Filipinos to sort of stake a new claim to kind of political recognition of rights in the U.S. through patriotic service. And that was made sense, right? Because there was all, you know, during the two wars, we're talking about World War I and World War II, there was special legislation passed to kind of expedite citizenship for alien soldiers. I mean, Philippines are a little complicated because they're not aliens still at this time. Um, So there was for sure a sense that because of the kind of pluralistic, more kind of inclusive kind of rhetoric of the period, it was often sort of propaganda against the Axis powers, like, you're the real racist, we're not racist, look, we're including, <laughs> we're more kind of a kinder, gentler form of kind of air-invoked democracy. So there for sure is an opportunity through the kind of patriotic discourse of World War II that if you sort of serve the wartime state, that could potentially lead to a kind of payoff down the road in terms of political rights and recognition. So one of the challenges, right, in terms of the World War II story, because it unfolds both in the Philippines and in the the U.S., is that on the U.S. side, Filipinos are actually fairly eager to sort of enlist in the military. And I I don't know how many people sort of know some of the the sort of backstory on the the sort of U.S. entry into the World War uh, II. But of course, everyone knows about Pearl Harbor. But just a few hours later, the Japan attacked uh, the Philippines, right, and was quickly overrun uh, by sort of the Japanese empire, right? So a lot of Filipinos sort of through kind of more nationalistic kind of sentiments were eager to join the fight for, you know, maybe their commitments to the U.S. as, as being longtime residents, but also, you know, about worried about family and friends back home. Um, so there was a kind of high level of kind of, I don't know, support and kind of interest in sort of joining the allied war effort. But one of the things that they sort of discover is that like uh, large numbers of Filipinos show up at these sort of uh, selective service offices, military recruiting offices to enlist right in the aftermath of um, of Pearl Harbor and discover that they're ineligible, right? Because the, the enlistment forms can enlist either citizens or aliens, but there's no box to check for someone who is neither a citizen or alien, right? So they end up having to petition the federal government and the Roosevelt administration to create a special kind of uh, exemption to actually pass an amended law to make Filipinos eligible. And that happens, I think, six or seven weeks after um, the U.S. enters the war. So part of it, you know, sort of reveals the kind of, you know, continuing legacy of colonialism, right? That sort of the status as U.S. nationals that even when they want to join the war effort, they're technically ineligible for the initial period after Pearl Harbor. On the Philippine side, in anticipation of, of the U.S. sort of entering into the war, right, this was not... I suppose we could say, you know, that Pearl Harbor was a surprise attack, but the U.S. had been preparing for war with Japan for for a long time, right? So it wasn't a total <laughs> secret that that was something that was brewing. Uh, so in anticipation uh, for that potential war, the U.S. actually conscripted, you know, the Philippine military under the U.S. command in the Philippines uh, in the months leading up to the war, so before war actually broke out. And the numbers are a little hard to to get <laughs> exactly how many men were conscripted in the U.S. Uh, military. It's between 150 and 200,000 is, I think, the best estimates. And then more would end up joining over the course of the war, right? Many people who weren't in the, the Philippine uh, military would sort of join after the Japanese occupation, joining sort of guerrilla units who were sort of doing kind of um, sort of small-scale campaigns against Japanese uh, military outposts. But one of the, the kind of enduring and kind of important stories here is that during the war itself and in the 
including the part where the sort of U.S. fled the Philippines and was sort of ruling remotely from Australia and from, I think, Papua New Guinea, was the sort of promise that, listen, because you've been conscripted into the U.S. military, you're going to be treated the same as American soldiers, right? Same pay, same benefits, not unlike kind of alien soldiers, right? Expedited eligibility for expedited U.S. citizenship. Uh, none of those things turn out to be true, right? MacArthur famously is pledging, yeah, I guarantee you that Filipinos are going to be treated the same as you know, American soldiers in terms of pay, in terms of benefits, in terms of whatever, health and insurance coverage. And the U.S. never actually formally commits to that, right? It's just sort of MacArthur talking out of his uh, both sides of his mouth. And then by the end of the war, right, obviously the Allied forces win that war and the bill comes due and suddenly the, the kind of U.S. officials start to kind of get cold feet when it comes to delivering, which would be have been a very expensive set of obligations to um, all these Filipinos that had sort of served under the U.S. command, again, remotely. Um, and by now we're talking about potentially like 250,000 Filipinos had served in some capacity under the U.S. command. So, right, you think about the potential kind of, you know, medical and health bills of, you know, people who had fought in a war, uh, had suffered, you know, very significant kind of war injuries, back pay, because they were actually being paid uh, during the war at sort of half the rate of uh, American soldiers with the promise that down the line that would get made up, which never happened. And then really importantly, at the end of the war, there was a kind of controversy slash anxiety about this sort of provision of the Second War Powers Act that sort of made uh, any sort of U.S. soldier who had served um, during the war eligible for U.S. citizenship, right? any sort of non-citizen soldier. So we see this kind of weird about face among sort of um, officials in the State Department and the INS saying, do you realize what it means that potentially 250,000 Filipinos are eligible for U.S. citizenship as a, a consequence of serving in the U.S. military? That's potentially really big, right? So they start to figure out, is there any way we can sort of uh, renege on this uh, promise? Uh, what they ultimately do is a couple of different things, right? They initially say they withdraw the or sort of take the authority away from the kind of INS official in the Philippines saying, you no longer have the authority to naturalize people, right? U.S. or Filipino soldiers in the Philippines. That gets some pushback from some other sectors of the U.S. government that you don't, you don't have the authority to do that. Um, that was guaranteed by the Second War Powers Act. So they sort of back down, but what they ultimately do to kind of achieve the same goal is they just um, make the the one naturalization official in the Philippines unavailable. <laughs> He's never around. When people go to get to sort of file their petition to become a naturalized citizen, uh, the, the files get lost, the petitions get lost. So there's a kind of really, you know, kind of despicable character to this, right? The sort of making the official unavailable, trying to kind of slow walk applications. I, I believe the, the deadline to file under the War Powers Act was, I think, December 31st of 1946. Right, so if they could slow walk some of these petitions until after the deadline, um, the belief was that they would be ineligible. You missed the deadline, so you lost your chance. So it becomes a kind of important kind of, you know, legacy of, of sort of World War II, right? That maximum obligation is expected of these Filipino subjects. But when it came to sort of reciprocating this in terms of sort of rights and recognition, the U.S. sort of disappeared, right? Claiming, I mean, the sort of argument was that, listen, you said you want your independence, 
we're going to give that to you. But with independence become, you know, you take over all these obligations like healthcare, insurance, war rehabilitation, right? If you want your independence, why would you want to be U.S. citizens, right? You should be more focused on building up um, the Philippines, right? So the idea that, you know, large numbers of Filipinos are eligible for U.S. citizenship because of their war service, you know, at least per U.S. officials, doesn't make sense, right? You should be sort of focusing on having these people work to help rebuild the Philippines. It was sort of a fitting coda to formal U.S. empire in the Philippines in preview of what the neocolonial relationship would look like. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, you know, one of the last kind of real colonial engagements of the, of the formal kind is the passage of the Bell Act, this kind of trade act. Um, and this was sort of a, a last-ditch effort from U.S. officials um, to sort of secure a kind of advantage position in sort of post-colonial Philippine society. There was a concern that um, after independence, that sort of Filipino nationalists would, you know, like a lot of kind of developing countries did, would create sort of advantage conditions for sort of local Filipino producers and kind of national markets in the Philippines. So the Bell Trade Act was an effort to kind of make sure that the U.S. had equal standing always with any kind of Filipino kind of uh, economic forces after the war. Right, this fear, I guess, that American business interests would be at a disadvantage in the Philippines after the war. So the Bell Trade Act was an effort to kind of make sure that that American business interests remained on equal footing um, with Filipino business interests after the war. To close out, I want to ask a question about you, which I don't always do on this program, but your preface was really interesting and moving. Your grandfather was part of the first era of Filipino migration and became a civil rights leader in the Pacific Northwest. Your uncle was murdered in 1981 in this infamous case by agents of Ferdinand Marcos in Seattle. And you write that you grew up amid, quote, farms, canneries, and warehouses of eastern Washington, and listening to my grandfather and other Manongs tell remarkable tales of labor strife, race riots, and political struggle. We could do an entire episode on this, but what did growing up in this context mean to you and how has it informed your scholarship in, in politics? Yeah, well, so, I mean, you know, the whole sort of origin story of, of my book in some ways is you know, one of these kind of accidents of <laughs> academia, a professor in graduate school who sort of knew a little bit about my background and sort of says, well, why don't you write a paper about that, like for a seminar? And I said, oh, okay. I don't find it very interesting, um, but figured, you know, why not? It's as good as any topic. You know, this was in the kind of mid-1990s, late-1990s, and found that it was not as easy as I thought it would be. There's very little written about Filipinos at the time. And so there sort of raised an interesting question about why, right? I grew up thinking that Filipinos were sort of really central to the American story. Uh, and one of the things, you know, that I mentioned in the book is the kind of first anti-Filipino race right in the United States is actually in um, the Yakima Reservation where I grew up. And my grandfather was one of the people that was attacked during that riot. So there was a kind of, you know, desire, I think, you know, after I sort of spent more time thinking about the topic to try to sort of reclaim this sort of history and sort of why has it been ignored? How come so few people know about it? And that's, you know, really one of the kind of most striking things about, you know, talking about the book all over the country in the past number of years is how many people say, you know, I had no idea. I had no idea there was a race riot down the street from where I live or, you know, I didn't realize, you know, I saw a mention of, you know, one of my family members in your book. Right? And I didn't realize that, you know, they'd been you know, subject to a vigilante attack in San Jose. So it was, you know, a kind of, you know, 
personal in, in many ways, but also I think it was a story that had, you know, really kind of important sort of national consequences. I mean, I sort of lived, you know, grew up in the kind of tradition of kind of oral history storytelling about these kind of infamous kind of confrontations with white vigilantes. Um, in the case of, of Gene, you know, that was personal in a different way. He was, I was a kid. He was, I think it was 11 years, old, 11 years old when he was killed. And I remember there being, you know, a sort of a lot of turmoil right in in town, right? This sort of member of our community had been killed. And there was a kind of interesting conflict over, um, they were gonna have a funeral service at the Filipino Community Center uh, on the reservation. And I went with my dad, you know, to this meeting, which was, you know, we did all the time. And there was a lot of, I mean, I didn't know what was going on really as running around as a little kid, but a kind of clearly voices were being raised. There was some arguments. And ultimately, I sort of found out later and on the way home, like, why were, you know, people yelling? There was, it seemed like some real intensity in conflict. And my dad said, well, they say that, you know, Gene is a communist. And a lot of the kind of migrants, including my grandfather's generation, were sort of Ilocano uh, from the Ilocos region in the Philippines. And Marcos was an Ilocano. So they had, even though they were sort of liberal or left on sort of civil domestic civil rights issues, they had a sort of soft spot for Ferdinand Marcos were not above this kind of weird sort of anti-communist kind of rhetoric that Gene was, you know, a communist, which, you know, he certainly was a leftist fellow traveler of some kind. Uh, he was involved in some of the kind of anti-Marcos sort of solidarity movement stuff in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, and was ultimately, he was also an activist in the LWU. And so one small sort of side story here. So by the sort of late 40s, right, the sort of federal government sort of gunning for the, the ILW Local 7 in Seattle thinks it's sort of run by these Filipino sort of veterans of sort of Communist Party activism in the 30s and 40s, which is sort of true, <laughs> um, and have a you know very progressive sort of leadership. Uh, and the federal government sets about trying to sort of destroy the union through kind of a campaign of harassment and persecution. And um, a number of the sort of leaders of that union are sort of arrested and threatened with deportation under the Internal Security Act and also the, the kind of um, Smith Act in 1940, um, early kind of McCarthyist, pre-McCarthy, but an early anti-communist piece of legislation. So this campaign to deport the sort of Filipino leaders of the ILWU is sort of rooted in this sort of sense that they were former members of the Communist Party and had lied about it or had not registered with the federal government. And there's sort of a series of sort of legal disputes where they're arrested. They face a sort of legal lawsuits by the federal government trying to deport them. Ultimately, the, the kind of Filipino union members prevail in the sense that they are able to forestall being deported. But the union is, is really destroyed, right? They go in a huge amount of debt, right? The, the individuals who are being sort of targeted um, are themselves in a huge amount of financial debt, the federal government has sort of recruited some kind of um, other members of the union who are more kind of, you know, conservative or moderate to take over the leadership. And I think a lot of, at the end of this multi-year campaign to destroy the union, a number of the sort of rank and file members said, we're, you know, we're tired of the persecution and the fighting. Maybe we want to sort of shift gears here in terms of the leadership. So one of the, the sad takeaways of, of that era is sort of the shift in leadership is towards a much more conservative a kind of corrupt leadership 
and sort of, so this starts in the kind of 1950s through the 1970s, and that's where uh, Gene and Silmi Domingo, his partner, um, are sort of enter, right? They want to sort of reform the ILW, which had become corrupted and sort of a racket, racketeered kind of union uh, by the late 1970s and sought to reform the union um, through, from the inside, right? They both were former cannery workers themselves. So it's one of the kind of interesting, right, threads here is, how this sort of, you know, anti-communist campaign culminated in the sort of persecution of Filipino radical kind of labor activists, destroyed the union, at least in its kind of progressive form. And ultimately, we ended up with a really conservative kind of corrupt union. Uh, and one of the sad outcomes of that was the kind of assassination of Domingo and Vernes for their kind of activist work within the union. Well, Rick Baldos, thanks so much. Thank you, Dan. Rick Baldos is a professor of sociology at Oberlin College and the author of The Third Asiatic Invasion, Empire and Migration in Filipino America, 1898 to 1946. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the antagonism between English and Irish immigrant workers is the secret of the impotence of the English working class and the secret by which the capitalist class maintains its power. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really and truly does that is you just telling people that you know Hey, I like the dig. This is why you probably would too. Take a listen. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. <laughs>